our 2019 Vintage Year in Review on episode 96 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 96 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Year in Review show including our coveted Moxies Awards and a special bonus segment where Steve and I review Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. Boy, 2019 went by fast. <laughs> no kidding. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Not many announcements this episode because we've got a a meaty show and we really want to get into it. I just want to plug that I have local monthly vintage events here in the Southwest Michigan area. Grand Rapids has vintage on the fourth Sunday of each month at the Gaming Warehouse in, in Grandville. Battle Creek has vintage at Perfect Storm Comics and Games on the third Sunday of each month. And both of those events are full proxy. So if you're in the area or know anyone who is then come on out. We, we're trying to build our communities here. At the end of last year, it was pretty diverse, uh, what with you know all the Sturm and Drawing and Vintage, but also just the rest of Magic as a whole. And so we're committed to, in 2020, building out the community a little bit more. Steve, That's great. anything else from your perspective? Yeah, Eudaimonia in, in Berkeley will have a Vintage tournament on Sunday, January 26th, so the week after the Martin Luther King holiday. Fantastic. So, just for a bit of preamble, our year in review takes a similar format year over year. For longtime listeners, you've heard this format before. We're going to start by talking about the year that was 2019 for Vintage. That is, the changes and releases, banned and restricted list updates, the way the format shifted over the years, structurally, including some metagame shift data that the likes of which we're, we're want to review. Then we're going to move on to our Moxie Awards. This is where we nominate and discuss and ultimately award four awards for each year. In this case, we've got the best new card, the best set, the best deck, and the best story of the year. And we have candidates that we've retrieved on our own and received via Twitter. <laughs> and so we'll be reviewing those all in detail and, uh, and each give out our awards in the end. And then, as I alluded to, we will have a special segment at the end of the show today where Steve and I review The Rise of Skywalker. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. This mm-hmm. is going to be probably our most contentious award show, just because the nominations are, the field is so strong in terms of <laughs> candidates. It really is. It's, it's remarkable. I completely agree. 2019 is a hell of a year for vintage. There's no <laughs> surprise there, but we're going to review the salient details for you. So let's start off then with the the calendar basically of format changes for the year, Steve. Yes, yes. So this year was just chalk packed with major changes to the format. What's remarkable is it's kind of a dichotomous year, Kevin. So the beginning of the year is like the what do you want to call it? The lull before the storm, <laughs> the quiet. You know, the really there was no format change from. October 5th, 2018 until January 24th, 2019. And then no change between January 25th and May 2nd. Yeah. So on 
the first set of the year was Ravnica Allegiance, which was released January 25th. Um, so for the first month, it was just basically the same metagame in terms of card pool and banned and restricted list as existed for the final months of 2018. And the main card we got um, in Rav, really, there was only only one big card in Ravnica and Allegiance that I can remember, and that's Kevin. That is Lavinia. Yeah. Well, when Lavinia arrived, it was exciting for a couple reasons. One was that I mean, it kind of directly attacked PO and Xerox, which were you know at the end of last year some of the biggest parts of the format. Rug at the end of the year was kind of one of the biggest decks, and PO had just won the Vintage Championship in 2018. So Lavinia seemed like it was perfectly fitted for the format. And I think we were able to play... I, it, the, the second part is we were able to showcase it on the Vintage Super League. Mm-hmm. And Which if I'm not fun. mistaken, I played that week it became legal with Lavinia. Yeah, as did I, actually. I, at my first opportunity, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So so that was really exciting, and it seemed to portent a pretty good year. Although, I have to say, I think I think we probably are in agreement. It's probably the weakest set in terms of contributions to the format of any of them. Or at <laughs> yeah. least say the major sets. <laughs> Which I, I never would have thought given the quality that Lavinia represents, but I agree. It is. So January 25th, Lavinia arrives. And this is remarkable. January 25th, February, March, April. No format changes. No new sets. No ban and restricted list changes. But on May 2nd, we get War of the Spark, <laughs> which brings <laughs> some pretty remarkable changes, Kevin. It's amazing that to think that all of the bombast for the whole year of 2019 really existed just in the last seven months of the year. Right. It, it's it's it, I don't. If you're listening to this, I wonder if your memory if your memory had encoded it that way. Right. Right. Because it's it's it, it seems so much more distant. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really seem like a May 2nd arrival, but that's when Karn and Narset and Dreadhorde Arcanist came out. And we had a gangbusters set review. Mm-hmm. We spent a lot of time talking about Dreadhorde Arcanist, Kevin. Mm-hmm. That set review was a lot of fun. There was a lot of, of breakthrough design in War of the Spark. Certainly was. And we, the closing segment of our set review kind of warned that we were concerned. <laughs> Two things we said. One was that we were concerned that these Planeswalkers asymmetrical static enchantment ability type planeswalkers might prove to be too good because you just get too much meat on the bone you mm-hmm. get too much goodness in one card um and the other thing we talked about was ha- it, in our podcast we said this set could very well before year's end have multiple restrictions mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it <laughs> um so war of the spark arrives may 3rd and then, so you have a new format, a new vintage format, basically heralded by War of the Spark, brought about by War of the Spark. But that format only exists until June 12th, because on June 13th, we have a new set, Modern Horizons. So we have a month and a half of the War of the Spark format, which I really enjoyed, Kevin. Mm-hmm. It was a fun format, although there was a lot of Karn decks in the, in that format. We'll talk about that a bit later when we, when we talk more about the details of the metagame. Um, but Modern Horizons brought really some haymakers kevin very much so yeah i mean the cards hogak notwithstanding which is a a powerful (laughs) force on its own but the 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 dominant green cards in force of vigor and collector's oof immediately established themselves and i think in perpetuity like there's there's just no way that those aren't format staples in the long run and force of negation has proven to be a format staple we were ahead we that was my best set review, if I recall. I think I nailed, like, got two holes in one, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah. 
but but there were quite a few. I mean, Force of Negation has become a staple in Grixis, in in Jeskai, in Dredge. It's it's really just. I mean, it's all over the place, really. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Force of Negation has become a kind of a pyroblast type format staple. Um. So so June thirteenth to July one was a very brief metagame, Kevin. It was only a couple of weeks because on July second came Magic twenty twenty. And not only did Magic 2020 come with that, but we got the official full implementation of the London Mulligan. Um, and, uh, right, that came with Magic 2020. And the big card in, in Magic 2020, of course, was... Mystic Ford. Right. So it's it's interesting. The, the Modern Horizons metagame only lasted for a little over a couple of weeks. And then we got the Magic 2020 metagame, which lasted two months. And it came <laughs> to an incredible crashing halt. <laughs> now technically it came to a halt with Commander 2019 coming into 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 the format. But Commander 2019 came almost right right on the heels of Commander 2019 was the ban and restricted list change which was August 26th. Mm-hmm. Um and of course that was an enormous sweeping set of restrictions Kevin. Naturally. So the, for review that featured Karn, Mystic Forge and Karn, Golgari Grave Troll and Misstep restricted plus the unrestriction of Fast Bond. Right. So those were huge changes. And that metagame, that metagame felt, I think, bigger because for two reasons. Number one, it was the culmination of War of the Spark and Modern Horizons and Magic 2020. Mm-hmm. And it lasted longer than, than the month long War of the Spark metagame or that less than a month long Modern Horizons metagame. So it lasted for almost two months. So it felt kind of heavy in the format. And it was really interesting. We had a lot of shows talk, we had a big show talking about that metagame. And then from August 26th until October 1st was that post ban and restricted list metagame um, that led up to the arrival of Eldraine. And then Eldraine was officially legalized for the format on October 2nd. And that lasted, Kevin, until November 14th when Narset was restricted. <laughs> and so we're living in the post November 15th, November 14th metagame, November 15th metagame technically. And, and that's kind of the world we're living in today. So a mm-hmm. bunch of different kind of changes of the format. Some minor, like Lavinia, and some, I guess you could say Eldraine was relatively minor, although not really, because Oko kind of, I guess Oko is mean, on par with Lavinia. compared to summer, it was minor, but that's, yeah, a, that's, a, so, that's a high bar. So, so, so Lavinia and the Oko, is there anything, any other big uh, Eldraine, I, I don't want to skip over this, any other big contributions from Eldraine? Mystic Sanctuary is the next oh, biggest course. contribution, which is not the greatest in terms of raw numbers, of course, but has really impacted design for a certain subset of decks. So with between, you know, in any other year, Lavinia, Oko, and Mystic Sanctuary would be pretty sizable contributions. But in the kind of sweep of 2019, they look relatively minor as bookends. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yeah, in any other year, we, you know, we would be talking seriously about Throne of Eldraine as as contributing some some real contenders for our card of the year. Instead, it was a relatively minor year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just before we move on to the data, though, let's talk about the big events of the year, Kevin. So, you're, so when you talk about big events, we have obviously big paper events that we yeah. have as uh, tent poles throughout the year. Vintage Champs in North America is the, the the one that you and I put the most stock behind, but of course there's two others. We've got Asia Vintage Champs and the uh, European Vintage Champs, and then we have in the U.S. Fortunately, we have 
large paper events like NYSE, which in this particular year had a particular reinforcing connection with champs given the winner, which we will talk about in a little bit more detail later. Yes. But so we, the NYSE but, six, there was also a Star City Games Power Nine event this year. Yep. Which was interesting. And we also had the kickoff of some new and even more powerful events on Magic Online with yes, uh, the, vin- uh, the format playoffs contributing to the format championships. Yes. And there was also, I believe, a Waterbury this year as well. That's right. So it was a pretty great year for high, for high profile events. Really, really great. We'll talk a little bit about the vintage online Magic Online championship when we get into the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, this year, 2019, rather, was just packed with events, new cards, restrictions, mulligan changes, rule changes. It's it's really hard to pick one thread and say this is the dominant thread of the year. <laughs> so it's going to be uh, the last Moxie Award is going to be, I think, the most. Uh, we're going to have to debate it the most. There's going to be the most contentious, but also I think the most worthy of discussion and and um, debate. Completely agree. Shall we get on to the metagame data? Yeah. The, so w- what we'll do is let's begin by looking at the final few months of the year, Q4, and then we'll zoom out and look at the year as a whole. How does that sound? Perfect. Okay. So, you know, I like to talk about kind of the month-over-month changes. Um, Let's just, again, looking at the last couple of months, in terms of percentages, Q4 is actually really interesting. Um, We have to bear in mind that the restriction of Narset occurred um, in in uh, mid-November. So, the the, the data needs, you need to just bear that in mind. And also, you know, that the the restriction, previous restrictions, the sweeping restrictions happened at the end of August. So both of the last so, two quarters are split with key restrictions. Exactly. Um, starting with October, though, um, October October is really interesting. October was a pretty balanced month, actually. <laughs> so there was no. It was a three-way tie for top eight percentages between shops, Jeskai Mentor, and and Dredge. Sorry, I misspoke. There was nearly a three-way tie. So Shops and Jeskai Mentor each had 19% of the metagame. Dredge had 16%. And then PO and Oath were, Oko Oath were each at 9%. Um, Bug was at 3%. And then DPS and Eldrazi were each at 6%. One of the things that becomes really clear in the data, Kevin, is that the restriction of misstep opened the path for DPS. Mm-hmm. And so when you fast forward to November, one of the biggest changes between October and November is that DPS jumps from 6% in October to 18% of the met- of top eights in November. Wow. 18% is a surprising number for a deck like DPS. Huge. It, it won a number of the vintage challenges after champs. So DPS, and there was a lot of DPS you might remember at champs. It was kind of a surprising player. Yes, absolutely. And in the hands so, of some some good players. Right. So that long theorized conjecture that restricting misstep would make dark rituals viable again, there's a lot of evidence to support that that occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, we hadn't actually seen, you have to go back to the very first challenges back in, was it 2014, to see <laughs> DPS in the top eights. It had yeah. kind of disappeared. 
Absolutely. in the intervening years. And it's back. It popped up. It reappeared after the restrictions of misstep in September at 6%. Then it was 6% again in October, then spiked to 18% in November. The bad news is for DPS is it fell off back to 3% in December. But that's better than the kind of 0%, 0 to 1%. It's, you know, it's, it was 1% of top eights in Q1. Yeah. You know, and 0% of top eights in Q2. So it's, it had a pretty good Q4. And in fact, if you want a precise number, DPS's, uh, overall year percentages were three and a half percent, but it's Q4 percentages were, give me a second. I didn't calculate it, but Kevin, it's Q4 overall percent was a basically nine, was basically 9.6%. Mm-hmm. So almost 10%. So it goes from being, you know, almost nothing in the metagame to 10% of the metagame by the end of Q4. So DPS is a player. Now, <laughs> some might point to Bolas's Citadel as helping contribute to that. And Bolas's Citadel, sure. of course, was printed in... That's in War of the, the Spark. Spark, yeah. Which doesn't get a headline necessarily as compared to Karn and Narset and Dreadhorde Arcanist. But when push comes right. to shove, Bolas's Citadel is a contender for one of the greatest cards in that set. Right, no question. Now, th- just to... I, I was going to do this a month at a time, but I think it's actually better doing this an archetype at a time, don't you think, Kevin? Oh, yeah, it really is. I think so. Okay. So um, I went over DPS. Um, the next interesting deck, really interesting deck, I think is Bug. So we saw Bug at a, a really the record 47% of top eights in August. There's no deck that even comes close to that level of top eight percentages or top eight penetration per month. The closest is uh, Jeskai was 35% of top eights in March, and PO was 38% of top eights in April. But 47% is basically a threshold we've never seen before. And Bug was really kind of holding the metagame together in those middle those middle months of the post, was it Modern Horizons metagame pre-sweeping restrictions. Um, but Bug fell off a cliff, so it went from 47%, nearly 50% of top eights in August, to 3% in September. <laughs> that's that's really surprising i mean the the metagame did not obviously the metagame is what people play of course but the environment did not change so much so that would uh, promote well, that kind of shift in my opinion i made that point on twitter and i got yelled at by a bunch of uh, streamers <laughs> and and the reason i said that is because look i would have expected bug look yes bug was predatory to dredge and it was predatory for the the karn combo decks which got wiped out but Bug was still a good deck, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Dredge didn't disappear as a you know entirely as a part of the metagame. Um, it's not like there still weren't decks that like shops that Bug isn't good against. You know, shops was still a, a decent part of the metagame. Yep. So I, I didn't I didn't think that Bug would. I thought it would maybe go to like maybe ten, fifteen percent, but three percent just seemed too small to me. Yeah, agreed. And and it stayed at three percent in October, and it creeped up a little bit to five percent in November after. After the Vintage Championship, for reasons that are self-evident, which is that it won the Vintage Championship. Mm-hmm. But get this, Kevin. Bug exploded to 31% in December. <laughs> wow. 31%. <laughs> of top eights. That's incredible. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it's like the most oscillating, you know, if you look over the year, it's 9%, 0%, 5%, 0%, 3, 20, 13, 47, 3, 3, 3, 5. <laughs> 531 and that's the end of the year that is some impressive oscillation <laughs> it really is it kind of shows you just how dynamic the the metagame is right oh yeah i mean this year had the, some of the greatest extremes in terms of metagame <laughs> construction in 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 modern history 
So I already I already said that Dredge was 16% of top eights in October. It rose to 25% in November and then stabilized at 19% in December. So in December, it was actually the third most played deck. Bug, obviously, is number one. That's impressive um, that Dredge was able to put up such a number when Bug was always was already so prominent. Yeah, I think that the, I think those things went in reverse, right? So Bug was five percent in November of top eights, and Dredge was twenty five percent, and then yep. Dredge was nineteen percent in December. It, it's like balloons where one expands and the other contracts, right? Right. Dredge fell to nineteen percent, and Bug rose to thirty one percent. So I think that was probably part of that dynamic. Um, PO was kind of the boogeyman post restriction of Narset. And you can kind of see that occurring. So PO was only 9% of top eights in, in October, but then rose to 20%. And then bear in mind, you know, that, that we bisect the month of November with the restriction. So it doubled its number and then it rose even more in December. So PO is the second most played archetype in terms of top eights with 28% of top eights. And I think Bugs Rise is partly attributable to that as well. Sure, sure. Agreed. So the, by the end of the year, the big three are PO, uh, Dredge, really, it's Bug, PO, and then Dredge. Um, Jeskai specifically, and Turbo Xerox more generally, really fell off a cliff, Kevin. <laughs> Jeskai, Turbo Xerox decks were 19% of October's top eights and 0% of November's top eights. Really? Zero? And three, zero. Now, here, there's one caveat, is there were three Ren rug decks that I categorized not as Xerox, but as mid-range decks. I see. So if okay. you if you classify those uh, half the rug, you know, there's like the rug decks, like the Spurling deck, which is clearly a Xerox deck, yeah. And then there's like the more controlling rug deck, which has a bigger mana base. And I think is less of a Xerox deck, yeah. But there were zero Jeskai zero zero Jeskai decks or UR Delver or rug Turbo Xerox zero in the top eights, which is the lowest percentage for for Xerox we've seen in like years <laughs> you know like <laughs> half a decade right right it's, right it's incredible and then we're three percent in in um in december um and then oath oko oath kind of popped out of nowhere kevin it in october it popped up to to nine percent uh eldraine eldraine came in when did El- i just said when did eldraine arrive again uh, eldraine arrived in october right october 1st october 2nd sorry october 2nd yeah yeah um, and so, uh, so Oko really boosted o- Oath from z- Oath had zero top eights through the entire third quarter of 2019, and then it went up to nine percent, fell off a little bit to five percent, and was zero percent of top eights in December. But Oath got a huge boost from Oko. Um, I should mention though, it was zero top eights in December. It did top eight the Vintage Championship, Magic Online Championship. Mm-hmm. So it was it, Oath was there. Um, what did I not mention? Shops. Shops was nineteen percent in October. Has slowly fallen off. It's eight percent in November and six percent in December. This is remark. This is really a sea change, Kevin. I mean, the two <laughs> dominant archetypes, Turbo Xerox and Shops, are respectively in November and December, uh, zero and eight percent, and three and six percent. Yes, absolutely. These were the boogeymen of the format, the Sila and Cherubdis, right? And now they're just really f- off the map. They're they're tier two or three players. It, I'm. I'm- hesitant to ascribe too much in terms of long-term interpretation to this just because there's so much shift from month to month yes but, the but narset Kevin, restriction DPS is... has larger percentages than both of them <laughs> i know but um, <laughs> one of my point is simply that it's only one month right the uh, the, the restriction of narset st- shook things up a great deal and i i just think we need to 
be careful about drawing too many conclusions. I, what I would say is I wouldn't be surprised if Jeskai, for example, was another 10 to 15% in January. It, such a thing would not alarm me. And I, I don't think there's any structural reason exactly why those two formerly top one and two decks should be combined less than 10%. I don't think that's going to last. If this year has taught us nothing, it's that change is the standard, right? Change was thrust upon us via new printings and then their subsequent restrictions. So that's one kind of change, which is not normal for vintage. Far from it, in fact. However, I think that even though there was a restriction in Q4 in the form of Narset, and it's an, an important restriction, you and I talked when we reviewed that restriction about how it's one of the most diluted and least structurally impactful restrictions of all time, right? It's blue decks cutting one or two copies of Narset and replacing them with other frequently restricted, functionally related cards, right? Putting the Merchant Scroll back in, putting the Mystical Tutor back in, putting the fourth Preordain back in. Like, it was, we interpreted, I think, properly the fact that these decks would not significantly change in the way they're built. And I think that we haven't got to the deck construction here as part of this analysis, but I'm confident saying that our analysis was correct. The decks that are being played today do not look materially different than their predecessors in Qs 2 and 3 this year. And that's why I simply say that the, the, anything that you're seeing in December is not necessarily a sign of a, a, a in, per, in perpetuity change in the format. Well, I, I think, I think that's uh, everything you said is, is true as far as it goes. I think the, the thing that I'm trying to draw attention to isn't within the year, it's the year over year change. That, <laughs> well, sure. That, 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 that shops and Turbo Xerox have really held this, have grabbed this format by the collar and they've really subsided. I mean, so for, their totals in Q in Q4, Turbo Xerox is 7% and Shops is 11%. That's their Q4 averages. Mm-hmm. Compared to, that's below PO, which averaged 20%. Um, that's below Dredge, which averaged 20%. And that's even below Bug, which averaged 10, 13%. And, um, and DPS, which almost below DPS, which averaged 10%. So if you want to, if one way of looking at it is the tier one is basically PO, and bug, or if you want to put in there, bug, PO, and dredge. Mm-hmm. And then the next tier is DPS, I guess, and shops. And then it's not even clear what's beyond that. Maybe Turbo Xerox? Oath. You know, it's 7%. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Oath. I mean, Ren Rug, you know, has, is in there. I mean, its numbers were about 5%, you know, right up there with Oath for the, for the Q4. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that, becomes clear as the land combo decks emerge this year and but they they kind of they're the peak of the parabola is really in september and october for them right and they they kind of dis the sine wave they did kind of disappear they they're at three percent in november and then zero percent in december so the the land combo decks the crab combo deck and the other the zias bond and so on and so forth you know if you add them up they're actually under four percent you know for the year for i mean for q4 um and that's pretty much the whole metagame in Q4, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a couple other stragglers out there, but that's the I, picture uh, by years. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where you where you land on this topic, so I don't want to pour words in your mouth. I simply I acknowledge that it's an incredible sea change in the structure of the format and the results, and it's very noteworthy the the portion of the metagame that is that is shops plus. Jeskai or just and Xerox in general. I would I would simply point out one other asterisk, and that is that 
Um, you've had to make a little bit of equivocation with respect to where those rug decks fit. Yes. And yeah. you, and you so, and I have obviously differed on that semantically in the past, but we don't need to rehash that argument. I'm simply pointing out that if you if you come down on a different side of that assessment of that rug deck, then it bolsters the Xerox numbers a bit. Yeah, a bit, but it doesn't super change the, you know, it doesn't super change the dynamics. There's, yeah. you know, Agreed. Xerox is still in kind of the dredge range. Agreed. <laughs> um, so let's let's then shift from Q4 and zoom out to year year to date. Now, obviously, aggregating any year as dynamic and <laughs> kind of structurally different into one year, one one aggregation is is hazardous work. <laughs> but it does actually give us some interesting tells, Kevin. So, based upon the Q4 figures, and don't look. Which deck do you think has the biggest, the highest percentage of overall top eights in the year? The whole year. Yeah. And now you know that, that Bug has the number one winning month. Wins the trophy for the the, the biggest month. And Absolutely. It's what, and what was it? Is it fourth place, did I say, or third place? I think Bug has the first and third place most most top eights per month. Yeah. Now, I completely understand that, but I, I've got to imagine it's not number one overall. I mean, those were no. <laughs> incredibly high months and very noteworthy, but there's there's no way that was that maintained that for the whole year. I I can't shake the notion that the answer to this question must be a deck that was subtly present and had many, many, and multiple strong months throughout the whole year. Yeah. Let, let me just clarify the calculations, though. Yeah. So I didn't average all the months together. Rather, what I did was I took all of the top eight appearances, which is the numerator, and then mm-hmm. put it over the denominator, which is the total number of decks that made uh, the total number of top eight decks. Total possible top eights. Right. So there were 408 Magic Online Vintage Challenge or Vintage Playoff top eight, uh, top eight decks in 2019. 408. Mm-hmm. So that's the denominator. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know what my guess is? My guess yes. is Dredge. Oh my god, you nailed it. Really? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was. It fits all the characteristics, it's, right? It's a deck that it didn't have any real terrible months. I mean, maybe one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always been like in second, third, or fourth place in all of these different configurations of yes. the metagame. And plus it had a couple of real good months. Oh, yes. excellent. You, yeah, I'm I'm impressed. That was you nailed it. Dredge had seventy one top eight appearances for nice. 17.4%, 17 oh, wow. roughly 17, 17.5%. 17 is a higher number than I would have thought though. I would have predicted it's, less than 15 for the whole year, but yeah. It's huge. I mean, Dredge was really I mean, if you're looking just what is the most again, most consistent or most top 8 decks of the entire year, it's Dredge. Wow. It's Interesting. Dredge. It well, really I mean, is. It, it, it Bug, by the way is in the face of the the cards we're going to discuss like the the heavy hitters like Karn and Narset uh, those cards obviously got restrictions, and and Dredge was hit with multiple restrictions. Let's let's not yes. ignore that. But it also received two of the the best cards of the year in Force of Vigor and Force of Negation, <laughs> yes, and so the combination of factors that's really awesome. I, and I, the I, London I, Mulligan. Oh yeah, right. And the, the London Mulligan, which was a gift to Dredge. So yeah, I mean, I yeah. I basically been on Dredge since through almost the entirety of the year. I mean, I played a lot of PO in the um, VSL. Yeah. But Dredge is basically the horse I rode through most of this year. That's really interesting. I so, have to say, and I'm I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the end of the show, but I, I have to believe that not many people will encode 2019 as the year of Dredge. No, it's right? the winner of the most top eights of the year. <laughs> now, again, there's there's different ways. There's a million different metrics you can use to say what's the best deck of the year. Naturally. You could say which deck won the most tournaments. You could say 
which deck had the highest win percentage. You know, obviously win percentage is very important. We don't have access to that. Yeah. But top eight appearances an, is an indirect measure of win percentage. Yes. You know, obviously win percentage is just a function of appearances in the metagame plus win, you know, times win percentage. But you have to think that Dredge probably had one of the highest win percentages. Now, we did have a lot of data. I could have asked Matt and, and, and Ryan to maybe go in and see if they could calculate year to date win percentages. I didn't ask them to do that. I don't think it's really necessary. The, the point though is that, that, and maybe they would have been gracious, gracious enough to do that. Maybe they still will. But the point is that Dredge has actually a pretty significant, I would get, I would hazard to say is probably close to statistically significant lead on all the other decks of the year. Now we talked about bug. So I just want to say bug, given the variance in bug, bug still ended up in fourth place for the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still a strong year. Well, so yeah. So eleven and a half percent. Well, I will I'll give it to you, but just let me point out that bug was eleven and a half percent of the, of top eights for the year, but if I had averaged the months together instead of the appearances, I'm sure bug would have been way lower, right? So, so, sure. by, so I just yeah. wanted to clarify that. Number two was actually shops. Now, this yeah. is a little bit misleading because I'm combining the shop aggro and shop control, and there were some interesting shop control decks that had a couple of appearances, but I don't know if you really consider the Golos decks control or aggro or some hybrid, but shops were had 59 appearances or 14.5% percent of top eights in 2019 okay and and that by the way that also that does not include the karn combo deck does not interesting okay so the karn combo deck was had 16 overall appearances in the magic online results or four percent of the top eights for the year so if you add if you add the karn combo deck to the shop aggro control deck then it leaps dredge there's obviously, yeah, there's obviously a pretty wide berth in the diversity of shop archetypes in the ways you just described, as compared to Dredge, which has, has a much narrower band. I, I, I don't really agree with that, actually. I totally, I don't. I mean, if you look, so the, m- the vast majority of these shop decks are just clear shop aggro decks. Now, there's some diversity. Some run Precursor Golem and, and, uh, what's the, the, the big, uh, the one that unta- you have to play an artifact to untap it. Names oh, escaping yeah. me at the Traxos. moment. Traxos. Traxos. Some are more traditional packages with Steel Overseer, but they all have about you know sixty percent, seventy percent of the same cards. I would say that Dredge actually has a lot of the same variation. So if you look at Dredge, I mean, there's the Dredge decks like mine that run Wastelands. There's the Dredge decks that run you know there's do you run Unmask? Do you run there's the ones that run a bunch of Force of Negation main deck. The ones that don't. You know, there's like one Andreas Peterson's list that have like the full pitch, like four force of negation, four mind break trap, mm-hmm. four force of will, and then others that, you know, run, run a completely different configuration of disruption there. So I think there's actually a surprising amount of variation in the dredge archetypes, even the dredge main decks through the yeah. year. I mean, there's like, there were a point where people were playing main deck force of vigors and, and, and like, Hogak main deck versus no Hogak. So I, I, there, you know, there was even that period. I think Chubby Rain might have top eighted in around May. There was one that had like four Hogaks and had no blue. <laughs> in, you know, so there's, there's actually a lot of variation in the main decks of Dredge. Yeah, that's fair. I guess I hadn't considered that to the degree that you just described. I feel like there's some other metric that I'm intuiting that I can't yet articulate. But it speaks to the difference between shop aggro and a Karn Forge combo deck. I don't feel like Dredge exists yeah. on as wide a differential as those two examples. So, so that's why I I pulled out all the Karn Forge combo decks. Those yeah. those decks are in a separate line. 
Yeah. By I mean, I'm looking at these right now. I I think almost all of these shop decks in the in the fourteen and a half percent are really aggro. I don't know that there's any. There might be a few control, but the well, combo sm- decks those deck all was pretty were, darn low this year. Yeah. The the Karn decks are all sorted into that Karn combo okay. category. So if our audience is interested in consolidating every possible deck that has Mishra's Workshop in it, then it does have the most wins. That the card Mishra's Workshop no, has the most, the most top wins. Eight appearances. Yeah, top eight. Uh, out of curiosity, do you have a survival number in your data there? Yeah. So here's the thing: there are two other archetypes that have a bunch of bazaars. Right. There, there's one. There's this new deck called like the Pitch Bazaar deck. Which yeah. is like Bazaar Baghdad with all the pitch spells you can imagine. Basking Rootwalla, Vengevine, right, right. Commandeer, Force of Will, Misdirection. Um, the survival decks, yes, it is in, in here. So survival, uh, is, there are 11 top eights for survival. That's two and 2.7%. Yeah. So if so you were to add, if you give Bazaar the same treatment as shops in that context, then Bazaar comes out on top again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Let's see. Let me think. So it'd be 12 plus. Um, 71. So it'd be a total of 83, 83 versus 59 plus, what was it 16? 59 yeah, plus 16 is, yeah. So 83 is more than 75. Yes. Bizarre. <laughs> there are more bizarres funny. than shops. This, yeah, this is a, this is a, an art more than a science in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted so to be fair th- to our bizarre audience that, that, yeah, bizarre still comes out on top over shops, I guess, if you take the whole year that way. Number three, most most top eights in 2019, Kevin? You want to guess? Uh, I'm guessing, hold on, hold on, P.O. Correct. At 14.22%, one less than shops at 58 total appearances. Oh, dang. So a, a dead heat for second place there. Okay. Yeah. A little more than a, a quarter of a percent difference between them that one, that one deck, though, makes. Uh, I already said fourth place was Bug. Mm-hmm. Fifth place... Is the is is Jeskai? So I'm disaggregating the Xerox decks here, but Jeskai had 38 overall appearances in top eights. Okay. Um, if you add up the other uh, other um, Xerox decks, there were 30 Turbo Rug decks, Turbo Xerox Rug decks. So about seven and a half percent. So if you add those two together, which is m- the vast majority of the Xerox decks, you get about 16 percent. Okay. So 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 I guess if you aggregate xerox it actually leaps to number two above shops and po at about 16 percent, which i should have done since i do that so i guess i i, I lied this whole time <laughs> <laughs> because it's then 68 decks it yeah but that's a lot of of uh, archetype diversity that you're aggregating together there yeah so so the top is really again dredge then i guess xerox and then then it's Shops and PO are, are neck and neck. Follow, and then after that is is bug. There's nothing more that's ten percent. The next closest is um, actually there's nothing. There's nothing actually. There's only one deck that's between five and ten. Uh, no, there's no decks that are. Sorry, let me redo this segment. I'm babbling. <laughs> there's nothing, Kevin, that's between five and ten percent that I haven't already mentioned. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so for example. At about three and a half percent is DPS for the year, and if you were to extend DPS as Q4 through the year, its average would be close to ten percent, right? <laughs> right. But, right. But the restriction and misstep kind of boosted it. Um, Oath and Survival are both stuck at about three percent. Um, we already mentioned the Karn combo deck, which had a very brief shelf life, still managed at four percent of the overall year to date. 
which is remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> so really for a deck is. that was a deck that was basically legal for you know in, in the data for for so brief a period. Um, hold on a second, Kevin. Let me just make sure of something. Oh, you know what's interesting, Kevin, is the <laughs> that deck apparent that that deck. Let me restart this. Sorry. The Karn combo deck, despite having such a brief shelf life, Kevin, still existed for four months. And the reason it existed for four months is because there were two versions of it. Yeah. There was the yeah. version with um, Karn, which was in May and June, and then the version with Karn and Mystic Ford, which was in July and August. Right, right. So it had shelf life, but it had shelf life is, shelf life is two, basically two iterations. Well, and there so, was a lot of talk at the time about whether or not it warranted restriction in, at, already. But a lot of people were resistant to making a change when we had a new set and an expected to be impactful set coming out. And as soon as we got the full spoiler, it was pretty clear that <laughs> something was going to need to be done. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly. I was uh, my preferred action for that. I actually like the deck. I wanted to see it exist for a little bit longer. My preferred action was probably to begin with restricting Grim Monolith, and mm-hmm. I certainly thought. The Mystic Forge needed to go, but I, I didn't necessarily want to see Karn go immediately, despite the kind of just one-two punch of Karn followed by Mycosynthlatus or Time Vault. Um, Kevin, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. So it was an incredible year, you know, but I wanted to talk about, so again, we mentioned in August, there was a, a wave of restrictions, the most restrictions we've seen in quite some time, right? Really since the 2008 restrictions, which restricted five cards, this was the first time we'd seen that many cards restricted. Right, Kevin? Right, right. But in terms of the health of the format, you know, long-time listeners have heard me talk about the Genie Simpson co- coefficient, or Genie Simpson score before. And what that does is it's a score that measures both diversity and balance. So two different concepts, but integrates them into a single metric. And I just wanted to point out that in that score, the best Genie Simpson scores for the year were in May, when it was over 0.9, and oddly enough, in October. Interesting. Okay. So May, obviously, you know, the middle of the year, well before the restrictions in August, but also before really the full arrival of um, Magic 2020, when it was just, and really also before Modern Horizons. So War of the Spark, the month of War of the Spark was actually really healthy with Karn, Narsa, and Dreadhorde Arcanist. Dreadhorde Arcanist didn't see much play that month. It wasn't until Modern Horizons arrived that things began going off the rails. Now, it could just be that it took the metagame, you know, players a while to figure out how to break those cards, but May technically was the most diverse and balanced month of the entire year. Okay. Followed, followed by, uh, October, which was, you know, a month and a month and a little bit of change after the wave restrictions. The end of the year, I have to say, actually is not very healthy. The worst month of the year in terms of the Ginny Simpson score is the month of August which shouldn't be surprising because that's what precipitated a bunch of restrictions. But the second worst month of the year by a hair is December. Huh, yeah, interesting. That's surprising. The re- well, the reason is because, again, Dredge is, is uh, sorry, Bug is such a huge part of the metagame in December, followed by PO and then followed by, um, well, a smattering of their other decks. But Dredge and PO are kind of, you know, huge percentage of, of top eights in December. Specifically, in terms of percentage, they were 31 and and uh, 28% respectively. So those two decks basically strangled, followed by Dredge, strangled the, the entire metagame. They yeah. squeezed out everything else. Yeah. So the end of the year does not end on a really healthy 
note, unless you think that having a you know a ton of bug in the metagame is healthy. <laughs> but in terms well, of Genie Simpson, it's it's not a very healthy metric. I just wanted to uh, point that out. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I, I guess my per- perception is that uh, that won't continue. I think there's a fair bit of metagaming going on, the healthy kind of people <laughs> reacting to different developments and different and different construction changes. The bug being strong is, I think, a, a short-term reaction to shops surging again. And it was only, um, by surging, I mean just over the course of a week or two in the challenges. And so it doesn't surprise me very much. And I don't think there's anything to be concerned with from a format health standpoint at the moment. Yeah, it, it's not it's not so low that it's in the, the 0.7 range, which is the 0.6 to 0.7 range the points, anything between 0.6 and basically 0.80 are ranges that where we've seen restrictions occur using the Genie Simpson score. So we're not in that range, but we're we're just on the cusp of it. it the, it's not it's not great. And yeah. the the lowest Genie Simpson score was such that it actually precipitated restrictions. So yeah, um, we'll see. I mean, overall, I think it was a pretty good year. Obviously, the printings really really impacted the format in a significant way. And we're going to talk about that shortly. Yeah. Well, shall we move on then to our summary of the year in the form of Moxie Awards? That's where we're headed. All right. So for a brief bit of review, our Moxie Awards have four categories. We have the best new card, new set, the best deck, and the best story of the year. Now, the word best is used intentionally to be a little bit open-ended, subject to a <laughs> bit of interpretation, right? And so that's part of the, the fun of this thing. We reached out to you all on Twitter and got a number of great responses. Thank you for that. And those responses will form some of our summary here. Your respective nominations <coughs> for these categories will factor into our discussion, and, and we'll elaborate more on that soon. The good news is is that we've got some quantification of some of these categories that is not going to be the only metric by which we make a, a determination, of course, but in some cases, it has a pretty profound impact on our assessment, especially in the case of new cards, right? Top yes. eight appearances by new cards is a metric that we are want to use at every juncture. And so we're going to continue that here. Thanks to, obviously, our own assessment, but your collective uh, feedback via Twitter, we have a healthy list of candidates for card of the year. Yes, Kevin. One of the things we did was when we announced that we'd be doing the show, a number of you tweeted what you thought the answers to each of these award categories should be, the nominees. And yep. so we've actually factored that in to our evaluation. This, I have to say, Kevin, this is going to be one of the most exciting segments for me because <laughs> I, you collected the numbers, so I'm excited to see what the actual numbers are. But the, just to reinforce your point, you know, best is, is very subjective, and, and it really depends upon what criteria you use. You know, it's like the debate in sports leagues, what's MVP or what's, you know, most valuable. Right. And it's inherently subjective. But that said, what we're trying to do is we'll look at as many different metrics as we can. And so he, one of the criticisms that, w- that was law, law, uh, 
One of the criticisms leveled at us last year in our discussion of the best card of the year was that I selected Assassin's Trophy and Kevin, you, I think, selected Karn, but it was a little bit unfair to Assassin's Trophy because Karn had more, the previous Karn had more runway. Absolutely. And so what we're going to look at here is we're going to look at the number of appearances in the first three months after it's, it's printing and then also the number of appearances for the year. Um, and then as a, as a whole. And then we're also going to look at the appearances in the last quarter. So it'll allow cards to see kind of where they land at the end of the year, you know, where they stabilize. Right, Kevin? Absolutely. And we have a, a derived metric that combines those concepts, concepts, which speaks to how many top eight appearances per month that a card had, which is designed to normalize for release. That's awesome. Do we also have the Twitter poll results? Uh no, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't have I don't have the Twitter votes for the card as one of our metrics here. I apologize. But in some other of the can uh sorry, the categories here today, we do have actual counts of votes awesome. which which will influence our decisions a bit. Okay, so Steve, we've got all these metrics. We've got when the <laughs> card was released, we've got the th- the the four metrics we just listed, the whole year, the first quarter, the last quarter, the copies per month. What do you think the way to review a card is when we've got, hold on, one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, ten cards to talk about? Oh. Why don't you start with the cards that had the most appearances in order of most to least in the first quarter, first three months after it has appeared? We'll start I with can there. Do that. All right. So we've got ten cards on this list, and all of you who are listening can probably rattle off nine out of ten of them off the top of your head. We've mentioned most of them during this, this uh, show already. But in terms of most appearances in their first quarter, that is the first three months after they're illegal, number, uh, I'm going to start at the bottom. The last on the list, number 10, is Bolas's Citadel, with only six appearances in its first three months. Slow burn. Slow burn. Slow burn is the story of the first couple of these, of course. <laughs> in ninth place, Dreadhorde Arcanist with 11, only a little bit more, yeah, and a little bit more that. than that, Mystic Sanctuary with 15. Sanctuary is a somewhat interesting case, we'll get more to that. Surprisingly, in, in seventh place is Lavinia, with 22 appearances in her first quarter. Just above that, Mystic Forge, with 24 appearances in its first quarter. So now we're it, getting into... It didn't really exist for a full quarter, though, if I recall. Uh, well, that, but that's, um, that's right, yeah. Because we are measuring, yeah, the, the full three-month period, even though, yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird, because Mystic Forge came out in 2020, which was Jul- M2020, which was July, and then was restricted in August. So yeah. it had basically like seven weeks, six weeks. Now, it still was legal, of course, and still can appear in a top eight. That's but true. But it's significantly hampered by restriction. That, that, there's an asterisk by that number. Absolutely. Next up, so interestingly, above Lavinia and Mystic Forge, in fifth place is Oko, Thief of Crowns, with 31 <laughs> wow. appearances. That's incredible. I know. That's incredible. Oko has, wow. Now, there's a Jeez. tie for third place. So third slash third place. Karn, the Great Creator, with 38 appearances, and Collector Oof, with 38 appearances. Wow. Yeah. Both of those cards really uh, leapt out of the scene. And then there's a huge gulf in second place with 60 appearances. Remember, the third place with 38. 60 appearances, Force of Vigor. And in first place, with only one more, 61 appearances, is Narset, Parter of Veiled. That's incredible. So it, so-, so it sounds like Narset edged out Force of Vigor by a hair. Yeah, a dead heat though, 61 and 60. It's functionally, functionally the same number, of course. Now, so that's how they started. And as you've already observed, right, the restriction of Mystic Forge tamps its number down necessarily. 
and some of the cards near the lower part of the list were a bit of a slow burn. And Lavinia, being right at the beginning of the year, was also in a slow point of change for the format, right? A lot of these other cards burst onto the scene with a combined effect, which either reduced or amplified their importance. For example, Collector Oof leapt into an environment that was very ripe (laughs) for Collector Oof, right? So there's a lot of factors at play for the first three months. So where do you want to go next? Where I would like to go next is where it landed most recently. And then we'll do year last. In Q4? Yeah, because that kind of tells yeah. you where things have settled. In, yeah, so in Q4, last place is Karn the Great Creator. No no much surprise there with eight, eight copies. But interestingly, ninth place is Dreadhorde Arcanist with only nine. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's definitely related to the decline of Xerox that we've seen. That's right. And in eighth place is Mystic Forge. Again, no surprise. So Mystic Forge and Karn, their fates are linked, right? Yes. Then there's a tie for 6 slash 7, I think is what the number I'm on, uh, with Lavinia and, Myst- and Mystic Sanctuary. Well, Liz- so, Lavinia has really <laughs> kept its yeah. own. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's shown up in PO and so on. And, yep. and Mystic Sanctuary, I think, has surpassed my... I don't remember what my prediction was, but that's certainly surpassed well, no, my expectation. We, didn't, we did not review that card because it was not spoiled oh, when we did our review show. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the takeaways from this year. So then moving on, in fifth place, Collector Oof with 19, a, a fairly middle-of-the-road number. Oko, that, by, interestingly... By sorry. the way, sorry, I just want to point out the delta between those two. The mm. delta between the Q1, the first three months and the last three That's months. That's right, Collector Oof went from 38 to 19, a having, a, an exact having of appearances. Whereas Dreadhorde Arcanist only fell by two. That's right, that's right. Uh, of course, Oko's numbers, year-to-date, first quarter and fourth quarter, are all the same number. <laughs> right. It's 31 across the board. So Oko, is, his first quarter was also his fourth quarter. Yeah. Now here's an interesting one. In third place, third place, mind you, out of all these 10 numbers in <laughs> yeah, Q4, so excited. Bolas's Citadel. Wow! So I was thinking Collector's was third in the Q1. So yep. yeah, I was like, what surpassed it? Wow! 33 so, appearances so for Bolas's Citadel. That's suggesting that this is appearing in all the DPS decks, probably appearing in all the PO decks, mm-hmm. and maybe some of the Grixis decks as well. Yep. So, geez. really strong fourth quarter for Bolas Jesus. Citadel. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Just above that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that possibility. Uh, just above that, only one more in second place, Force of Vigor. Wow. Yep. Now... Uh, <laughs> This, the leap between first and second here is catastrophic. The really? second place card, 34 appearances, Force of Vigor. A respectful wow. showing, right? Yes. The first place card has more than twice that many appearances. Jesus. And it's Narset at 72 Holy in Q- Q4. Holy smokes. Now, Narset did get restricted in Q4, so <laughs> it's hard to project it forward. Yes, right? I, I because- totally agree. Yep. But it's Jesus. also it also speaks to what we've already this what we observed when the restriction happened. We've already alluded to in this show, and that is the restriction of Narset does not materially change the ver- the structure of all the decks that played Narset. Right. And so it's more down. This number here is is going to be more impacted by just metagame percentages for archetypes rather than than quantities of Narset. So right? so yeah. So on the Q one and the first three months metric. It's basically a tie between Force of Vigor and and Narset, with the caveat that in a report card, Narset was way behind. Yes. Uh, on the on the Q4 metric, it's not even close. Narset not even is close. like leaps. I mean, it's it's there's kind of a tier two, which is Oko, <laughs> Spillus the Citadel, Force of Vigor, all in the 30s. 
Yes. And the tier one is, is Narset at 72. Yes. Now the decisive factor for me is going to be, is really going to be the year, year to date. So now we have, we have two different lenses for the year. We have a total number, which is obviously powerfully influenced by when a card was released, right? Yes. But we also have copies per month, which speaks think, to the whole year. Yes. Let's see. Let's, let's do the year and then the copies per month. <laughs> okay. All right. So for the whole year, last place is Mystic Sanctuary. It's yes. Again, a late release. By, yeah. Yeah. It's a late release combined with the fact that it's that doesn't go in very many archetypes combined with the fact that it was a, a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a narrow usage. Okay. It, it's, it's not the card of the year. We'll just yeah, absolutely. stipulate to that. <laughs> but in ninth place, surprisingly, Dreadhorde Arcanist, which came out in War of the Spark, mind, right? So yeah. a, a comparatively early release for the year and what still the, only what, 30 copies for the whole year. 30. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the baseline then for a potential candidate for card of the year is 30. Okay. Absolutely. Just above Dreadheart Arcanist. One more. 31 appearances by Oko. Again, it's the same number for Oko. <laughs> God, this but card Oko is has, appearing everywhere. Well, it's and like Oko has half as much time, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Dreadhorde Arcanist comes out in May and Oko comes out oh, in October. No. It's less than half as much yeah, time. Yeah, I was going to say less, way less than half time. Yeah. That's incredible. Because I think like Dreadhorde Arcanist came at the beginning of May versus October 2nd. That uh, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, That's so incredible. in seventh place, Mystic Forge. Obviously a huge asterisk next to Mystic Forge. 34 appearances, but wow. it accomplished most of those appearances. <laughs> I know, but most of those appearances were accomplished in a very short window, as we know. God, if it hadn't been restricted, joke. that number would be three times as big, probably. Is is why is Oko such a funny card? It's just so humorous <laughs> to me. I don't know. It's probably the name, the quirky name. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of things. I, at I play think there. I just enjoy the the kind of anxiety that the card has produced across constructed magic. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it doesn't impact me very much because I only play old school and vintage, but. I, I think I, I think I get some kind of Schadenfreude out of that, honestly. <laughs> well, let's talk more about that in a little bit. Okay. The, the, what what Oko represents. But moving on, in sixth place with fifty one copies for the year, Bolas's Citadel. So middle of the road, wow. fifty copies. Fifty that's still, copies that's is a respectable show. It's crazy. It's a know. crazy number of cards. It's insane. <laughs> and just above that, just above that at fifty four is Karn the Great Creator. Obviously, Karn wow. is hampered, right? So that Our number is is has an asterisk by it. Uh, a little bit above Karn at 57 is Collector Oof. A very strong year for Collector Oof. So the f- fourth on this list now. There's a little bit of a leap here. The 73 copies for Lavinia. Third Ooh. place, 73 Lavinias. Well, Lavinia the has the longest runway of any of the cards. That's right. So, so her copies per month is not noteworthy, is, is not very high on the list. But for the whole year, she's put up a respectable Good showing. Good job, Lavinia. Nice job. Yeah. Second place at 98 copies is Narset Parter of Veils. Wow. So number one is Force of Vigor. 103 copies for Force Ooh! of Vigor, just a little bit more. Oh my more. god, that's a lot of copies. Yes, it is. And that's just, a, that's not, it's, we should be clear, it's not copies, it's actually appearances. It's just appearances, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, yeah we're not counting quantity. In, in, in like 300, 400 range. <laughs> well, for, and Force of Vigor is so frequently played as a four of, right? That's, yeah. Yes, it would it would obviously probably, dominate this number. Probably between two and three, 300, because there, yeah. it sometimes appears like a two of, but wow. Yeah. So 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 just along the three metrics we have so far, Narset wins the first by one card. Yeah. Narset crushes on the second by like thir- by by basically double. By, by double, yeah. Yeah, exactly double. And it loses by 5 on the third. So for yep. me, this is going to come down this is really going to come down to the last category, the appearances yeah. per month. 
Metroid. Well, I'm not I'm not going to belabor the point. I mean, the bottom of the list is Dreadhorde Arcanist at 3.8 appearances oh, per God. month. <laughs> it was it's been here the whole year, but it's, it was a slow burn and had some real low points, right? Yeah, had some high points too, but the the midpoint of the list is about seven copies per month. Like Karn the Great Creator and Mystic Forge had six and seven copies per month on average. These are pretty yeah. loose numbers, right? They're they're aggregated. Then uh, Collector Oof is in fourth place with eight and a half. Then there's a bit of a jump. Ten and a half copies in third place per month. Ten and a half copies for Oko Thief of Crowns. Oh my god. Third <laughs> place on this so, list. So obnoxious. <laughs> it's crazy. So this normalizing for time bit is, I think, very noteworthy because it yes. points out just how much Oko burst onto the scene at the it's, earliest opportunity. It's really unbelievable. I mean, for a blue-green card to be splashed, to be so... That's... That far surpasses what my wildest imagination could have projected for this card. <laughs> I mean, just, it's, it's really incredible. It really is incredible. It, yeah, agreed. Now, in second place, with 12.4 copies per month, is Narset. Wow! So Force of Vigor is the winner. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Force of Vigor is not only the winner, but in my estimation, is a winner by a large leap. Because wow. Narset had 12.5 copies. Force of Vigor has 15 and a half copies. Wow. And for a per month number, that's actually a big difference. Yes. Wow. So 15 and a half copies. Remember that the low parts in the list were around four or five copies. Right. Well, 15 and a half copies for Force of Vigor. So Force well, of Vigor the, gets first place in it's appearance two, out, not two copies, out of the four metrics. Yeah, I understood it. Yeah, I'm using copies loosely, of course. Okay. But uh, it, yeah, so Force but, of Vigor gets first place in two out of the three, two out of the four metrics and was effectively tied for one of them you know one so, behind narset so here's here's the interesting so here's the interesting thing right this this data is super fascinating first mm-hmm, of all mm-hmm. so thank you kevin for putting this together this is i hope is entertaining for our listeners it is to is for me as a co-host listening to this um one of the things that hadn't occurred to me is that that narset had a month leap right it had an additional month of of appearances over force of vigor because it came out a month before that's and right. still had five less copies. So, 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 remind me one more time. What's the for both of the top two? What are the year? What are the copies or the appearances per month average? Narset had twelve and a half, and Force of Vigor had fifteen and a half. So three more per wow. month. That's for huge. Force of Vigor. And and what was the baseline? The mid mid card again. The mid the, one. The, the midpoint of these numbers is about seven. Wow. Yeah. So it's effectively double the midpoint. Yeah, so look at Lavinia had, for example, six and a half appearances per month throughout the whole year, which is a respectable year, of course. <laughs> yeah, Don't get no. me wrong. That's a, a solid <laughs> showing. And and she's third place in, in total copies, remember. Right. But so, but still, I mean, so here's, Force here, of Vigor more than doubled that. So let's get out of the metrics, out of the quali- quantitative, and move to the qualitative for a moment. Yeah, yeah. So now in trying to evaluate, you know, MVP or whatever, you know, it's like, the war, the wins above replacement here is, I think, clear. You know, we don't have the win percentages for the cards, so we don't know. We can't actually calculate war. You know, we can't. Yeah. We don't have an analog to that. It is quite obvious, though, that there is a huge difference between the two cards. Oh, Broadly yeah. speaking, Narset is an engine disruptive card, whereas Force of Vigor is a utility card. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are obviously loose terms, but there, there's a huge difference. It's the difference between. I don't know, factor fiction and lightning bolt or <laughs> gush and swords to plowshares. You know, they're yeah. just, they're fragmentized. They have different functions. Um, one question we didn't ask is how many of those force of vigors are on sideboards? And should that matter? <laughs> should it matter if a force of vigor is a sideboard card? I, 
Well, I, I think it's up to you and I and our audience how much it matters, so to speak. Yeah. But the short answer is yes, a significant portion of those force figures are in the sideboard. I don't have the actual number, of course, but right. it is a significant portion. I would I would wager 30 to 50% are in sideboards. Yes. A lot of archetypes, a lot of decks were split two and two, for example, throughout the year. A lot of bug lists yeah, had some I main and some side. It might even be more than 50%. It's yeah. hard to know. It's hard to I know, mean, but survival, compared to Narset, though, very few of the right. Narsets are sideboard. The, a scant couple were sideboard. The other thing, I mean, so obviously Narset being restricted is is in its favor, but it also hurts it in the long run in terms of being able to shape a metagame. <laughs> you know, and the other thing is, you know, we we know how much did the restriction of Narset really change the metagame? That's an, yeah. empir- an important empirical question. Agreed. Because I, I don't really know that we can say it changed all that much in terms of the composition of the metagame. I mean, look, after the restriction of Narset, which basically we're looking at, I guess, to really draw that comparison, you'd have to compare October to December because yeah, the com- because November the is muddy. So if you October to December, I mean, what do we actually see? I mean, shops collapsed. So obviously Narset isn't going to be attributable to that. PO went from nine to twenty eight percent, so I guess you could say the restriction of Narset helped PO. Um, but but PO was already twenty percent in November anyway, and it really was on the on the come because of the Vintage Championship results with PO. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I don't know I don't know that Narset's restriction. Look at a tactical level, Narset's restriction was huge. It means that card decks get to play with other you know can play cantrips more easily. Blah blah blah. You know, don't have to necessarily have to play with pyroblasts and so on to get rid of it. But from a strategic metagame compositional level, bird's eye, a macro view, I don't think the restriction really changed that much. The dynamics, you know, we said this during in our last show. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems really clear, crystal clear, <laughs> that the printing of Force of Vigor dramatically changed the direction and tra- trajectory of the format. Fundamentally. Dredge would yes. not be at seventeen and a half percent of top eights if it wasn't for Force of Vigor. Just it would, would not, not be. Yeah, it would not uh, have been the year long winner the way it was. B- Bug would not be a serious candidate for deck of the year if it <laughs> wasn't for Force of Vigor. Just Absolutely. Would, so, so you, ha- so it's a weird thing where, you know, if you if you say, well, one is an engine card, kind of a core strategic implement, and the other is just a mere utility card. That's true, but their compositional effects are the opposite of that. <laughs> Completely agree. If if you track what I'm saying to the listeners out there, can you unpack what I'm saying a little bit better and maybe help folks understand my point? I, I don't know. I think the way you articulated it just then was was pretty darn good. It's just okay. you can assess the cards on their face value without considering broad metagame trends and, and deck construction implications, and you reach the conclusion that you said. One of them looks splashier than the other, right? You'd never compare Jace the Mind Sculptor to Disenchant. <laughs> like, but what I'm, but what ex- I'm saying, it's an extreme version, but right, that's a great juxtaposition. But what I'm what I'm saying is, I think actually, Narset, Narset, I think Force of Vigor's effect was more strategically important. Mm-hmm. Narset's was relatively more tactically important because what Force of Vigor did was make decks good, whereas Narset just strengthened existing decks. I completely I th- agree. And I think it changed the composition, it changed the orientation of the format in ways that I think Force of Vigor will be playing. Well, obviously, Narset, now that's restricted, will see play forever. And Narset <laughs> just being blue, blue, one. But I think Force of Vigor is one of those core utility cards like Leyline of the Void or Force of Will that will be played for decades from as long as this format exists, it will see play. Yes, absolutely. So I, I was getting nervous when you, on your second metric, 
Because it was like, <laughs> wow, that really seems good for Narset. But I think the combination of the qualitative point with the average, both of the last two metrics, the last two metrics are clearly in favor of Force of Vigor, but the qualitative component, I think, also goes in favor of, of Force of Vigor. So if you just look at it quantitatively, and if you give equal weight to our four metrics, the first metric was basically a tie. The second is a huge win for Narset. Mm-hmm. The third is a slight win for Force of Vigor, and the fourth is a huge win for Force of Vigor. Yeah. So the metrics lean towards Force of Vigor or a tie, which means it comes down to the qualitative question, unless you weight the fourth metric more importantly, which I do. <laughs> I think it's by far the most important metric. Uh, I do too. The, it, it's far more important than the year-long metric, for example. Yes. So yeah. I think the year, I think the card of the year is Force of Vigor. Before I give my response, I want to un- unpack a couple of qualitative things with you. One of them is, I'm going to phrase this as a simple binary, but it's obviously not. Do you believe that Narset's restriction is a mark in favor or against Narset in this category? I, I said this earlier, I think it's a mark in favor. Okay. Because it suggests the centrality of the card, if not in view of the DCI, certainly in view of the players who complained about it. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying it's it's a mark in favor of the card's importance and impact. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that is a completely reasonable take. I think it's not cut and dry, obviously. I wouldn't have posed the question if I did. I believe that there's another element to the equation, which is the obvious negative impacts that Narset had on the format, right? And I'm not just talking about public opinion, because uh, we've talked about it a number of times, but public opinion on against Narset was fairly negative, and I would say overall negative even though many players played with the card and yeah. acknowledged its utility and its power, <laughs> yes. the simple truth is it's, it has this, uh, this negative connotation with, oh, great, now Narset's in play, now we have to play this well, sub-game of Magic, right? Yeah, I, that, that's a very good point. I, I think that there is a, I don't know what you call it, in my Gush book I talked about it, I, called it per, I think I called it Perceptual Salience, which is then when you, when you play a game of Magic, there are some cards that are, that, that feel more salient in the course of the game and some cards that feel less. So like yeah. if you play a turn one ancestral recall, you might, it might not feel like ancestral recall won the game on turn five. But when you sure. play a turn two necropotence, it often feels like necropotence won the game on turn five. So there are just some cards that have more perceptual salience. I think what makes Narset unique is that it impacts the, the, the game as long as it's in play even if it's not doing anything in terms of its activated ability. So it has a kind of perceptual salience that Force of Vigor doesn't. Force of Vigor removes permanence. And while that may actually lead to game wins, and often mm-hmm. does, it's it's in a different way. It's it's the negative, it's a you can, it's like proving a negative, right? It's like like Chops has disappeared in lar- from the metagame or, or declined in the metagame in large part because of Force of Vigor, but it's like that effect is more the absence of something rather than its presence. So it's less perceptually salient. Its effects are less perceptually salient. Yeah, completely agree. And I'd like to take one more swing at this from a slightly different angle. Would you rather that R&D printed more cards like Narset or more cards like Force of Vigor? Force of Vigor. Yeah, I think that that's not a big metric in favor of how the card is this year, right? It's a purely yeah. personal preference and it's almost completely subjective. But I completely agree. I want many more Force of Vigors. I want cards that promote interactivity in the way that Force of Vigor does as compared to the way that Narset does, right? Well, it was just really needed, frankly. I mean, we needed a green... It makes green better. 
Yep. Number one. Number two, the shops have just been so good for so long. <laughs> and I think yeah. this card was really important to kind of helping tamp down shops a bit. I mean, it yeah. really was important. Well, I just think it's, it's role in promoting the health of the format cannot be overstated. <laughs> I'm with you and I, you touched on it and I want to reinforce the historical precedent that force of vigor represents, right? There, when you think about vintage in the real long term, right, there's a number of ways to encode the format. And one of the ways that you and I do is individual cards and how they are iconic, right? The Power Nine, etc. We've talked about this with respect to the play mats and, and other various topics before, right? And one of the key cards for vintage is Force of Will. And it's key for a number of reasons, right? It's omnipresent. It's important. Many, many games, you know, hinge around the presence of Force of Will and how it interacts with the stack and, and key spells. And Force of Vigor is now an additional uh, player on that spectrum. Yes. Yeah, Which that's my I opinion. just love. I, I love completely, and so, I, I would like more of that. So we have a lot of other moxies to get to. My yep. moxie goes to Force of Vigor, and Kevin Crohn's goes to... Force of Vigor. Woo! It's a clean sweep. <laughs> All right. Let's move on and, to one that will be... Way, before Sorry, we move on, I just want to—I want to say that I, going into this discussion, I had a truly open mind. I was open to being persuaded either way. I mean, I, I knew it was going to come down to these two cards. Yeah, and I didn't know which way I was going to go. But I think that the way that you presented the data, and I think all the assessments we made, I think the qualitative assessments really do toward, lean towards Force of Vigor as well. There's just a very strong case for Narset. I don't want to underestimate that. <laughs> no kidding. There's a very strong case for several of these cards. But right. I, I'm with you. I, I knew that these two were really going to be high on the list. The numbers bore out more in Force of Vigor's favor than I thought. And they really did kind of tip things <laughs> over for me in the long run. Wow. So, so Kevin, what's our next Moxie category? Our next Moxie category is Best Set of 2019. Oof. And this one will be a little bit easier to, to summarize okay. because obviously the, the numbers are much smaller. So there are, there are technically five candidates. But owing to our voting <laughs> via Twitter, yeah, the, the competition has been narrowed for us, I would say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. We put out the vote on Twitter, and I recorded uh, which sets got how many votes. So, <laughs> in a tie for last place, <laughs> with zero <laughs> votes, <laughs> goes Ravnica, Eldraine, and M20. <laughs> and also Commander, 29. And also Commander, which I, yeah, I didn't even put on my list. Yeah. None of those sets got any votes. The only two sets that did get votes are War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. So it's a bit of a recapitulation of Narset versus Force of Vigor here, right? Yeah. It's, it's obviously more complex than that. War of the Spark, clearly, and we alluded to this already, but War of the Spark brought us Narset, Citadel, Karn, Arcanist. Jesus. And, and Modern, Horizons, Modern Horizons brought us Force of Vigor and Oof and Force of Negation. And so... Both of these sets have lists, lists of really good cards. Obviously, our- each set has the, t- the top one or two, depending on how you measure the metrics we just cited. So let's let's use our um, cards per month metric, since I think we we both agree it's the best metric. <laughs> which All set right. which set comes out best in that in that metric? It has to be Modern Horizons because really? Modern Horizons has the first and fourth place cards. It okay. has Force of Vigor, which is obviously the highest number at 15.5, but it also has the fourth place card in Collector Oof, which had 8.5. Wow. War of the Spark has the second place card, 12.5 for Narset, of course, 
But then it has the fifth place card in Karn and the seven. And at the, near the bottoms of the list, Bolas's Citadel and Dreadhorde Arcanist. Those cards are in the bottom half of the list. But so it, but, but it has more cards. Yeah, obviously. it has more. It has. If I'm counting this right, War has four of the ten. Yep. And Modern Horizons only has two of the ten. And you don't even have Force of Negation on this list. That's right. I don't. Um. So I'm there's looking, a number of ways second. to there's a number of ways to slice the cards per month. If you just sum all of them, then War of the Spark wins through quantity. Yeah. But the thing is. It's it's actually pretty close, even though Modern Horizons right, only has two on the Modern top. Modern Horizons 10. is one and four, but War of the Spark is two, five, seven, and ten. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. How do you balance then, that out? That's like well, saying, do you the, want? You know, do you do you want? Jeez. Yeah. Well, the total comes out to be twenty four for Modern Horizons it's, and twenty nine for War. In that, you know, metric. it's like it's like two NBA teams where one team has the best player and the third and the fourth best player, <laughs> and then another team has the second, the fifth the seventh and the tenth i think you know like honestly those that's like sounds like good competition to me you know yeah well and it's worth pointing out similar to our conversation about the best card that war of the spark has two restrictions of the ah, year two of yeah. the three restrictions from these sets what was the twitter poll responses the twitter poll response was not close at all so i just want to preface that if you had to think off the top of your head that this <laughs> poll was not even close which set do you think won? Not knowing the number. Uh, I know how much people hate Narset. It had to be the Narset set. <laughs> you are right. So modern, <laughs> uh, we, we had 19 votes on Twitter. Modern Horizons got three of them. War of the Spark got the other 16. Let me ask you something. Which set mm-hmm. do you think, if five years from now, will have more cards in top eight appearances? That's very speculative, but just take a guess. <sighs> Gosh, that's really tricky. Narset will be omnipresent. It could be right? Eldrain. God, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Narset will be omnipresent. There's no doubt about that. Now restricted, blue blue. I don't know. Continues to play I'm, the yeah, same role. Yeah, it it will, will be in most of the the blue archetypes, at least the way we mo- we currently understand them. It's cards like Karn, Karn is not a sure thing. Bolas's Citadel, while awesome. Is also not a sure thing, in my no, opinion, in, in multiple years from now. And Droid Hard Arcanist is definitely not a sure thing, right? The, it's it's a role player. It's a good card, but it's a role player that could that could vacillate down to zero in the near future. So I would say that there's less, there's more of a the War of the Spark cards have a greater variability in the future than the two Modern Horizons see, winners here in Force of Vigor and Collector Oof. I can't, I, I I can't, but feel that we're disadvantaging Modern Horizons because we we're not including. Like force of negation, you yeah, know. Well, which I mean, our 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 voting list was large, and so I, I simply didn't include it. Well, you're well, you're absolutely back, right; it's a good card. I'm looking back at the other cards from the set. Force of negation. So it also had Modern Horizons had had Hogak, Renin Six, and Force of Negation, and Prismatic Vista, mm-hmm. and also had Urza. Which, by the way, congratulations, Justin Gennari won an event in November <laughs> with Urza. It yes, was outside of it, our report card, but he did it. So congratulations. Um I, I congratulated him directly through through uh through verse on Twitter. What do you think what do you guess is probably the total number of appearances force of negation? Is there a oh, way you can gosh. look that up? Uh well absolutely I can. Okay. Let's let me just pause and why don't you look that up real quick. So it's worth noting that the the cards that I used for our top ten here were nominated. Were were nominated, yeah. yeah. It wasn't a pure numbers game because it uh, apparently 
there are comparatively few features uh, people at least on terms of our followers who reacted to this inf- this request for information there are comparatively few who uh, feel like force of negation is their card of the year right it could so, be the most like 5 years from now it's theoretically possible it's the most card pl- played card from 2019 i mean what uh, if all I, blue decks run like two or three force of negations you know that would yeah. be so the I, I don't have the immediate count in front of me but i can tell you it's a pretty high number for, you know, year to date number. I'm eyeballing the results here, but it looks like about fifty. Wow! So that's yeah. that would be in the middle of the range of the cards. That yeah, you'd... It, it, it might be even in the top half. It might be more than fifty. I'm, I, again, I'm eyeballing it here. Oof! That could be decisive for me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's important. Uh, we're at the risk of um, reducing these sets to just the ten cards we talked about. That's yeah. not fair. So that's a very good point. Modern Horizons probably wins the the quantity numbers if you take all things c- together so if, because there's not there's not an equivalent card from war of the spark that we're not really considering yeah right? because force of force of negation is played in a lot of different decks right now yes and so absolutely. if force of negation is in the top five if it's if it's in the top five then then modern horizons will have three in the top five and war will have two in the top five yeah, it's worth noting there were there were fully two different players playing Ren and Six at the top eight of champs this year. Yeah, <laughs> like that's a it's a pretty this big is, impact. And in any other year, that might be a headliner. This is really close. And you mentioned it, but Prismatic Vista is a sleeper hit in my opinion. I think Prismatic Vista is destined for greatness in the format in the long term. So, uh, on paper, I think given the considerations you just added, Modern Horizons definitely has the greater numbers. Well, then War it, it, has the two restricted cards of the year, of course, which, depending yeah. on how you feel about that, can add more or less importance. <laughs> and, and and also, Bolas' Citadel is functionally a restricted card. So, I mean, <laughs> th- I mean, I think War's impact kind of narrows over time, because yes. the only card that's left that's going to be more than a one-of is Dreadhorde Arcanist. So, yeah. whereas, whereas Modern Horizons is going to be shaping things for a long time. Now, on the other hand, having two restricted cards, that's hard to beat. In, in a brand new set, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This this feels like a a dead a dead heat to me. Yeah, I, I mean, could go it, either it way. It feels like yeah. It depends on which metric you um you really go by because you've already assessed that force of vigor versus Narset meant that force of vigor made more structural change to the format, right? Yeah. Well, what if you what if you compare things as force of vigor versus um Karn the Great Creator, for example, like. Yeah. Karn had a, a very outsized impact on the format as compared to Narset, for example, but it was obviously in partnership with Mystic Forge. Yes. And so the, the intricacies are pretty hard to compare one-to-one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, let, let me... Does this you help you break the tie? Yeah. I'm going to ask the same question I asked before. Would you rather them make more sets for Vintage, like Modern Horizons, or more sets like War of the Spark? Oh, it's not even close. I mean, I think Modern, I think Modern Horizons is the best set for Vintage in a very, very, very long time. But yeah. uh, and by best in this case, the, my, the semantic sense, I'm, I, I mean it to mean um, a positive, influential, metagame, healthy metagame shaping set. But that's mm-hmm. not the same thing as best in the sense of what is the uh, you know you know <laughs> which set is most abusable and influence the metagame outright mo- the most. Yeah, yeah, which I know. which is really what we mean in the spikish sense of the term. I well, think I'm going to have to say. So let's see. Look, 
Did did the winning bug deck have collector zoof in it? Do you remember? I don't yes. remember. Joe, it, Joe Brennan's champs deck had collector zoof in it. Yes. Did he? Did his deck have more war or modern horizon in it? Probably, probably <laughs> had to be more modern horizon, right? Because the only war card well, was a pair. Well, of I mean, yeah, bug is kind of a modern horizons deck, right? Yeah. So I, I'll try to validate that here and now, but I'm I'm real strong that it had more modern horizon. I think that the, my concern is these the hanger ons like the, the bullets, the citadel, the rise in that gives me real pause. Going war, I mean going going modern horizons. Like I'm not held up by Dreadhorde Arcanist, which was like my favorite card from the set from that set when we yeah. did our review. But I am held up. I, I like to me, it's like between Bolas's Citadel and Force of Negation and things like that. You know, um, I'm going to assume that Force of Negation is in the 50s. You know, and probably. Has a per has it probably like around a six to seven? It's probably like a seven per month copies per month. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> I th- I think that collectors oof is really really important in a format where oath where um po is so powerful. Um. Yeah. I think it plays a similar function to Narset in that regard in terms of slowing the po deck down. Um. I don't know. Let, uh, since I went me, first on the last category, you need to go I, first on this one. I'm comfortable going first this time, but before I do, let me ask you one more f- reframing of the same question, and that is, which of these two sets would you be happier just removing from the history of Vintage? Oh, well, that's not even close. War of the <laughs> Spark can be it, remo- removed without you know, me losing a wink of sleep. I would be quite upset if we lost Force of Force of Vigor and Collector's Oof and, and, and yeah. you know all the other goodies. Yeah. Uh, I think that the w- the the vehemence with which you uh, responded to that speaks to my sentiments as well. But that uh, also cuts the other way, right? I mean, the card that led to the set that led to more restrictions is possibly the more abusable set, and therefore the more impactful set, the best yeah. in terms of leading to wins and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, I am interpreting the spirit of this this award to be rewarding R and D for shaping vintage the way that I would like it to be shaped. And I'm speaking only for myself here, but if the best thing that could happen to Vintage, in my opinion, for this year was Modern Horizons. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think the tiebreaker for me is the fact that Bug is one of the best decks in the format and gained... I mean, it's really easy to say, like, look at all the decks that gained with Narset and Karn, but all the decks that win are winning in the latter months of the year, um, you know, are, are really relying on, on Modern Horizons. So I think I'm going to give it to Modern Horizons as well. This was a very, very competitive category. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have gone either way. Uh, I'm not going to give a tie, so I'll give my moxie to Modern Horizons. All right. Thus far, it is unanimous. Let's move on then to the best deck of 2019. <laughs> now, obviously, there are a lot of decks. And obviously, we could slice this in a number of different ways. You can talk at the, the macro level and say that the best deck was, I don't know, Xerox. Or you could say that the best deck was Jeskai Dreadhorde Arcanist, if you wanted, for example. Yeah. We're going to take a pretty open-ended approach to this, meaning we're going to allow for uh, some variability here. When we polled our audience, there were definitely some winners, right? There were basically three decks that were discreetly identified, and those three decks, in no particular order, are Bug, Rug Walkers, a specific variant of Rug, and Karn slash Mystic Forge shops. I'd like to the, throw the one other deck. candidate in there. Dredge was the again the highest percentage of the year of decks. So mm-hmm. Dredge Absolutely. is obviously a candidate for that. 
I completely um, agree. Uh, and I, I figured you would say that because this is just the voting from our audience, but obviously we can amend it as we see fit. So here's the thing. Karn, Karn Mystic Forge or just Karn Shops, there's no doubt it had a good couple of weeks, but there was never a period, meaning a defined format, where it was actually the best deck in terms of the numbers. The mm-hmm. time that Karn was the best deck was Bug actually outperformed it. Yeah. So I would rule that out. Now that could have changed over time, but it didn't look like it was going to change. The deeper, when, when the Karn deck got Mystic Forge, Bug got even better. So I think I would rule out the Karn deck as being the best deck because it was never better than Bug. Now, was it more broken? Of course. <laughs> was it hist- one of the most historically broken decks of all time? Yes. But it just so happened that in the metagame, there was a solid answer to it. Mm-hmm. And and the tactical answers were were helpful and important, you know, both the recent printings of of uh, Force of Vigor and Collector's Oof. So I would rule that out. I would rule out Rugwalkers. I would rule out Dredge. Dredge didn't have a single appearance in the Vintage Championship Top Eight, despite its success on Magic Online. To me, this is there's only one one possible real answer. Now, <laughs> I mean, it's it, honestly, I think it comes down to PO or Bug, in my opinion. And and that's just using the, the the metrics that we had. So I would a- add another nominee, which is PO Kevin. Naturally, naturally, PO had more top eight appearances in the Vintage Championship. Um, it had uh the the second most uh top eight appearances per month in the year. Thirty eight percent was it in May, April? I can't remember which. And it had huge numbers throughout the year. Um, let me go back to it and just give you some of the the numbers. So PO was, let's see, 38% in April. Actually, its numbers were lower than I re- remembered. It was 38% in April and 28% in December, 20% mm-hmm. in November. And then it didn't have any months that actually broke 20%. It was close in February at 19%. So PO, PO was, I think, is the, the next candidate. But I think this, I really think this has to go to bug. This is obviously bug was fourth in terms of, um, top eights over the year but it it had by far the biggest month and it won the vintage championship and it beats the other top decks Mm -hmm. so to me the deck of the year is bug and by bug i mean bug slash bug r but bug another mark i think in bugs favor is the scenario that you couple of scenarios that you already alluded to one is that in the face of the most broken deck of the year the car and mystic forge combo deck bug was you know a metagame scalpel that preyed on that deck and reacted and was very successful it's it's an unusual thing for us in the whole history of our metagame analysis for this show for a hugely dominant uh even short term but a hugely dominant say month or quarter for a deck the likes of which bug observed for a, a little over a month to be a metagame reaction to a more powerful deck right right We've had a number of cases in the past where the dominant deck was also just the most powerful deck in the format. Thinking back to the 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 four, you know, the four thirst Tezzeret deck, for example, that wasn't a reaction to something. That was the best deck in the format. Right. Right. That's true. It was just the most powerful thing you could do. Right. This scenario with Bug in the middle of this year was preying on the thing that everyone rightly identified as the most degenerate thing you could do, and it it was rewarded by its medical over and over again. Yeah. yeah, I think that's noteworthy. That's true. But also bug seemed to benefit from every new set. It's like, (laughs) okay, Oko. Yeah, I'll take Oko. Sure. I'll take Narset. (laughs) Sure. I'll take force of vigor. It's like bug grafted onto itself. Every innovation, like the Borg, 
It was the Borg yeah. of 2019. <laughs> so I love that analogy. Kevin, I just wanted to point out something else before you continue. So just to focus in, Karn Shops in May had four top eights uh, in the Magic Online Vintage Challenges. In June, three. In July, four. And in August, five. The com- combo deck. It was never the most in any of those months. In yeah. May, Dredge had six in um, appearances where it had where Karn had four. In June, Dredge was nine where it had three. Shop Aggro actually outperformed the Com Combo deck, Karn Combo deck in May and June. Yep. And then Dredge was eleven appearances in top eights when the Karn Combo deck only had four in July. So the Dredge deck was apparently pretty well positioned against it with Force of Negation and Force of Vigor. Not surprising. Yep. It's not very impacted by Karn. And then in August, Bug was 15 appearances when the Karn deck was only five. So yep. I, I, just, I think we can rule out the Karn combo deck. <laughs> I agree completely. I don't really have much to add. Your points are my points as well. I think that Bug's comparative dominance in, when, when the metagame was really... People were expecting the, the Miss Karn and Mystic Forge decks to dominate... And they were great decks, but da- but Bug was actually the better deck and, and better positioned. And as you observed, Bug really rolled with new printings throughout the year and integrated them in a, in a smooth fashion. You mentioned um, Oko at the end of the year, which is obviously noteworthy as well. Let's not forget Brazen Borrower oh, yeah. coming in as a, as a cute <laughs> role player in that archetype right near the end of the year, too. I just... I, I do agree, and I love the way that Bug adapted throughout the course of the year. In that black... Uh, the Black Planeswalker was that a new yeah. printing? But it might no, have... you, Liliana, the Last Hope. Yeah, still got not it. a new Rec- printing. Relatively recent printing, though. Yeah, and, and that's a cool, a cool use of that, which is again more metagame reaction. I mean, more so than most decks, Bug is a metagame deck through and through. It has been throughout its when, history. When you look back on 2019, what's the deck you'll think of this year, Kevin? <sighs> that's a complicated question because. The Karn Mystic Forge deck was such a flash in the pan. Yeah. But, but but its numbers don't, you know, don't support that in the way you just described. I I personally will have a hard time encoding this year as the year of dredge, even though it was a great year for dredge yeah. in terms of diversity of construction as you alluded to, new printings making it very powerful and and so it dredge deserves attention. This year will stand out for me as one because of Rug Walkers, just because I have a, a lot of affection for that deck, and it's the one that I played at Champs, even though its numbers are not enormous. It, it's really difficult for me to say, because I have encoded some past years as the year for Bug, for example, right? Yeah, like 2011 um, or whatever around there, 2012, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that, that snuff-out build of yep. Bug back then, which was so good. Th- that's how um, I'm going to encode this year. I really will. Yeah. Well, I can appreciate that, and it's going to dovetail with our discussion on stories, but Joe Brennan's wins at NYSE and Champs with the deck, I think, cement the thing for me. Yes. I'm not sure if I would feel that way if if he specifically or someone else hadn't done that, but it really cements it for me, and so I also also give my moxie to Bug. I completely left this out, but the vintage, the Magic Online Vintage Championship was this past weekend. Yes. I obviously qualified by top-hitting two of the playoffs. There were 39 players. I don't know who the 40th player who qualified didn't play was. I suppose I could have looked that up. Um, <laughs> but the winner, I went 3-3 three and three with Dredge. Rich Shea went 3-3 three and three with, I think, uh, some kind of Spelossus Citadel combo deck. Maybe play P.O. There were a bunch of... Uh, Montalio was 3-3 three and three with uh, Shop. So a lot of 3-3 three and three players. But the winner was Dredge. Mm, interesting. The second place deck, though, I think, I think was uh, Discover N, 
who was the um as of last week was the trophies leader with Jess Guy. I actually beat him in a league right before the vintage championship um with Dredge. So um Dredge won the Magic Online Championship as well. If I mean that is a prestigious prize. I mean that was an incredibly competitive event, Kevin. There's like forty of, uh and for Dredge to win that's no small thing. That that is a good point. Uh, there's no denying that this was a great year for Dredge and the competition is tight here. <laughs> there's no two ways yeah. about it. The competition is tight in all but these categories. I think Dredge not making a single top eight at the vintage championship was pretty fatal to its case. <laughs> I mean <laughs> that's for, true. for for deck of the year. Yeah, I, I'm that, gonna that's true. I, it, to me, it's bug. Um, and for you, it sounds like it's bug as well. It is bug as well. Okay. It's a clean sweep. So it's a unanimous card so far. So in review, our, our card of the year is Force of Vigor. Our set of the year is Modern Horizons. And our deck of the year is bug. But Let's there were some great great second place candidates. I mean, the, the, the second <laughs> oh, yeah. category, I think, was the hardest. I mean, that oh, yeah. easily could have been War of the Spark. So this this next category is is obviously the most nebulous because yes. <laughs> we're not we're not really talking about discrete quantifiable things in every case. Story of the year is the one we like to conclude with because obviously it speaks to how we in, how we wrap up this year, how we view this year in totality. So uh obviously we polled you on Twitter for this category as well and there were some very good responses. I'm going to I'm going to read out the top I guess this is Read them all. They're fun. I'm gonna seven or eight. We got here. I think. Read in, from in the total. bottom. Read from the votes. The lower votes okay. up. So in the lower votes, one vote was. <laughs> this is hilarious. One vote was for. Oh snap! Tinker for Citadel of Bolas. <laughs> 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 Which you know is definitely a narrative for this year. Bolas Citadel's uh, role in the metagame. S- uh, on, on a completely unrelated note, <laughs> another nominee was. Uh, Yusuke Takakua playing in all three champs. Pretty impressive. North America, Europe, and Asia, which is pretty awesome. And this came from from friend of the show, uh, Hiromichi-san. Nice. And he said, to his knowledge, this is he's the only person to have done this. So that's pretty cool. That's I hope cool. that more people do this, can do this in the future, because that's an awesome trifecta. Okay, moving on for slightly more votes was the proliferation of new Planeswalkers. This got a couple of different votes, and it's pretty noteworthy that we have on our list of the top quote-unquote 10 that we reviewed, but obviously it's a slightly larger list than that, but it features two Planeswalkers getting restricted and another one yeah. in Oko uh, having a, a, a field a, day. Yeah, a, a really breakout performance at the end of the year. So Planeswalkers is definitely a strong through line for this whole year. Next up, <laughs> and this one is, is, I'm putting it the way it was phrased on Twitter because this is a great just summation. It is a 3-3 green elk named Black Lotus. <laughs> 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 and this is a reference to the fact that Joe Brennan uh, got some of Defaced. the damage through yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in the finals of Vintage Champs North America with uh, a Black Lotus that had been turned into an elk. And then decorated his Black Lotus trophy. Yeah. into an elk that was pretty yeah. entertaining so next after that is the sheer quantity of new playables from this year which obviously we've already touched on in our first two categories this year is just a runaway hit in terms of new cards being added to the format which made the first two categories of our awards here so difficult in a good way and it's just slightly more popular than that but obviously pretty closely related is the quantity of restrictions this year is obviously incredibly noteworthy in terms of just the sheer quantity of restricted cards for the year. It's been a long time since we had 
this kind of quantity inside of one year of restricted cards, and most of them brand new cards. Yeah. But our number one vote getter from all of those of you who responded on Twitter was Joe Brennan winning NYSE and North American Champs this year. We have congratulated Joe before, but I'd just like to take this opportunity to say congratulations again. Obviously, his performance for the year is fantastic. And, and he doesn't also- compete on Magic Online either, which is even more <laughs> impressive. Yeah, and that's, that's he- cool. He's a paper-only player, and he also uh, conducted both of his wins with the same archetype, Bug, which yes. I already alluded to, is, is formative in my impression of its that deck's performance over the course of the year. Yeah, he really pushed it. I mean, it was it was easier to figure out Bug in the Karn Dredge metagame. Harder when you have to compete with a lot of Jeskai. Yeah. And so he brilliantly did that. Absolutely. Kevin, so these are the nominees from social media. Are there any big stories that are missing here? Well, this covers the ones that were high on my list. So I think there's, I, I know there's there's more to it than this this year, of course. But uh, I don't have anything that I want to add. I think there's at least one story I want to add. It's the mm-hmm. the London Mulligan. The the mm-hmm. the trial of that. Then the uh, evaluation of that. I mean. It was bizarre from start <laughs> to finish. It was a truly yes, that's strange true. narrative. I mean, so they announced that they were going to do it, and then they actually implemented it for three weeks in in May, in April rather, on Magic Online, and then they waited, and then they announced in June they were going to have it be official. So I think that was a very strange. The the whole story around it is very interesting as a narrative for the year, and its effects on the format have been enormous. And in fact, mm-hmm. there's some chatter on social media which i read recently that said that they think a lot of the problems in in constructed formats of late are indirectly or directly attributable to the london mulligan that it yeah. exacerbates dominance of or predominance of certain archetypes and i think that that the london mulligan is so many different knock-on effects so you know the way in which it interacts with the cantrip decks, the Xerox decks, the way in which mm-hmm. it sh- it improves dredge decks, the way it improves the Karn combo deck. You know, mm-hmm. it's just it's kind of it's it's like the interstitial lig- ligaments that really formed vintage over the year. It was like the it's it's the invisible force that shaped everything. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's like the the Karn deck wouldn't have been nearly as dynamic. Without the yep. London Mulligan, the Dredge deck wouldn't have been nearly as powerful. Leylines got so much better. I mean, everything. The PO deck is so much more obnoxious with the London Mulligan. You might remember the yep. reason PO spiked in April was because it was the the London Mulligan. Mm-hmm. That was why it, was it had the deck that, th- that everyone went to. Yeah, yep. it had that thirty eight percent. Like that, that, it changed. I mean, it changed so much. I mean, you could, you know, uh, this, how good is Bullis Citadel when you can just bottom it? You know, and you're, <laughs> and when you Mulligan to six. So it really changed. A lot. I think that has to be one of the top. I'm surprised no one nominated it. Maybe it's because it's kind of a structural force. It's again not as perceptually salient. But I, I well, think, and, and, yeah, and a lot of these topics are obviously proximate to the moment, right? Right. I mean, and the London fact Mulligan that the London feels Mulligan like arrived, ancient <laughs> But it, but but the, I thought you were going to say is look, London Mulligan's arrival coincided with War of the with with um, Modern Horizons. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, sorry, not minor. It coincide. Its formal arrival coincided with 2020 M2020. Yes, it which was, was tested sh- alongside Modern Horizons. No, it was tested it, in April before both War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. The wasn't the Magic Online temporary test in around the Fourth of July. No, 
the the temporary test was the last three weeks in April. Oh, okay. So the, right. that's part of the what's so odd about it is there was the test was in April and then it became official in June first. So it was like <laughs> there's this enormous basically you know month gap between them between yeah, the two. Anyway, yeah. um, I think that the London Mulligan has has shaped. I think it it may have a bigger long term impact than anything in the entire year. It may, including yeah. the new sets, including the restrictions. To me, to me, this comes down to three stories. The, I mean, look, if it wasn't for these three stories, Joe Brennan's success would be the story. But the three <laughs> stories are the, the, in, the wave restrictions and specifically the restriction of mental misstep. Like that by mm-hmm. itself is, is arguably the top story of the year. The, 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 the crazy new sets for constructed in vintage magic in particular. And then the London Mulligan. Those are the three big stories. The restrictions, the new sets, and the London Mulligan. Well, those things, in addition to Joe's story, are the greatest vote-getters in our audience responses, of course. Yeah, but no one talked about the London Mulligan, which is, is a force amplifier. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it amplified everything we just talked about, like, it, to the max. I mean, these, issues, <laughs> these things wouldn't even be issues if it wasn't for the London Mulligan, not nearly as much, you know? So completely agree. That is, I think, undeniably so. So I'm leaning towards my nomination as the story of the year. I think the London Mulligan. The, the to me, the only competitor is the the wave of restrictions. Simply because it wasn't just a wave of restrictions. It was the 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 restriction of mental misstep was so fundamental. You know that that restriction helped opened. I think the restriction of misstep is partly why bug that we we saw bug. Now, obviously, misstep was not restricted. When Bug was dominating during the summer. But I don't think Bug would have won. Bug would not have won the Vintage Championship if three things had not happened. Number one, if, if Misstep had not been restricted. Number two, if not for Modern Horizons. And number three, actually, I think it's just those two things. <laughs> because, because it's, it's the, actually, I think the London Mulligan helps Bug. Because here's the thing. The London Mulligan makes the can trips, it, it reduces the value the premium value that Xerox decks get. Mm-hmm. So it rebalances bug vis-a-vis um, Xerox. So I think, I think, th- but the first two are more important. I, th- I think that missteps restriction is directly helps. I mean, look, missteps restriction makes dark, dark Deathrite Shaman a million times better, period. Definitely. And missteps restriction made Dark Ritual a million times better, period. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think... And then obviously the London Mulligan helped because it made Bug, which isn't a pure Xerox deck, better able to compete against Xerox. And it made PO better, which makes indirectly Bug better. Mm-hmm. So it's worth I, noting that, that Joe Brennan had two preordains in his NYS le- I, I, NYSE winning list and zero in his Eternal Weekend winning list. Ex- exactly. Exactly. I mean, the Mon- London Mulligan can help it basically is like as you know a preordain yep. yep. so i i think that here's what i'd say i think the two biggest stories are the restriction of misstep and the london mulligan at the end of the day because the just i want to frame the restriction of misstep first of all it was something that people have been debating for the better part of a decade since the beginning of our show really mm-hmm. one of our early earliest shows was about phyrexian mana Look how many of those cards have been restricted now, and 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 finally we get misstep hit, or have have, have seen play or been impactful in some way. And this is kind of the big the big one, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, Sean O'Brien has hated this card forever, <laughs> and I finally got on board. You know, I just think that I, you know, at, at this moment, I think it really helped open things up. I mean, anyway, I mean, obviously the restriction of Narset and Karn and Golgar Greyfrawl were important, but nothing compared to the restriction of Misstep. I would agree with you there. There's there's so much to unpack. There's so much overlap. As pertains to one of the categories, and that is the the quantity of new playables, I do think this is a noteworthy year in terms of new playable cards. Yes. It's cer- certainly above average, and yes. it may have longer term, you know, this year may go down with longer term impacts than we can currently appreciate, owing to your assessment of Modern Horizons earlier in the show. And I think that's important. At the but same there, time, there are lots of years with lots of playables. <laughs> 1999, 2003, 2006, uh, 2007. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of years where there's tons. 2011, tons of playables. That, that was that was going to be my point exactly. And thinking back to things like Mirrodin and and yeah, I mean, Kaladesh, the year Mirrodin came out, right? it was like Judgment Mirrodin. I mean, it was an insane <laughs> year. You know, I know, I know. And let's not forget things like simple things like Fetchlands, right? Yeah. Odyssey. Um, or I'm sorry, Onslaught. The um, so uh, while I do think this is an above average year in terms of total playables, I don't think it it's enough to to peg the needle in terms of these other topics that you've brought up. Completely agree. The London Mulligan is undeniably incredibly important. I am not sure, but I'm having a hard time putting myself in in the future of will I encode 2019 as the year of the London Mulligan, and. And I say that just because the effects you described, especially with, for example, the spike in paradoxical outcome, right? There was this, there was this big leap in that five color outcome list because people, th- th- let's not forget this is the year basically we started playing with draw sevens and outcome. Exactly. Right? In fact, like, there that was wasn't a, a thing walking into this year. In fact, there was a deck that top eight, I think in November, that was basically a Narset draw seven deck. Oh, was, absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. And Narset exacerbated the draw seven problem, of course. Yep. But. I think that's noteworthy, but at the same time, I, I can't, I, I don't know why, but I just, it feels like an incremental shift to me. And maybe that's yeah. a tautology, right? The London Mulligan is an incremental shift by definition. It didn't create any decks. It, it made decks adjust. It made PO add draw sevens. It made decks like Bug be able to be successful with zero preordains, right? It rebalanced some things. It made the Karn Mystic Forge deck, obviously far more reliable because otherwise shops doesn't have ways to fix its draws right so you've outlined the effects they're undeniable i i can't i they're so inextricably tied the london mulligan and the karn forge restriction is so inextricably tied. you have to though i mean you have to i mean i just think that that karn wouldn't have been nearly as problematic without the london mulligan i mean there's just no question in my in my view the ability to mulligan to six bottom the crappy card and and find your combo pieces was just ridiculous. It's made dredge. <laughs> that's partly why dredge is so much better. The London yeah, Mulligan, absolutely. it's just a huge boon. Look, here's how here's how I put it. There are sometimes things are visible, mm-hmm. and they are evident. Sometimes things are invisible, like climate change. Like so, you so climate change is considered a threat multiplier for conflicts around the world. That is, mm-hmm. if you already have ethnic conflict or war or other kinds of conflicts. Climate change exacerbates them, but it's also an independent thing. I, I think that that's basically what, what the London Mulligan was this year. And it sounds like I'm trying to persuade you about the importance of the London Mulligan, <laughs> uh, but I'm not. I, I'm just saying, in my opinion, that's how you think about it. There, Yes, there are independent yeah. things. The London Mulligan made all these things worse. 
it, without the London yeah. Mulligan, I don't think Golgari Grave Troll would have been restricted. I don't think Karn would have been nearly as nefarious. It might have still been restricted, but it wouldn't have been nearly as impactful. I, I think the story of the year is is the London Mulligan, and I'm going to give that my moxie for this reason. <laughs> the miss the restriction of misstep is a very you know I, I think it's it's certainly worthy. But here's why I'm going to give it the edge. I think that what we're seeing play out and against all constructed formats and then the way in which it was proposed and implemented especially after it was outright rejected as an option a couple of years ago is so odd so <laughs> so unique and so kind of bizarre in its testing and rollout and the way in which you know like like they they said oh everything's clear because we tested it in april and then they released <laughs> modern horizons and war of the spark and it's like oh crap uh you know you know what i mean like they didn't put those two together i think I think the London Mulligan is the invisible force that shaped everything this year. And I, and I think it had its tentacles all the way down to the vintage championships and beyond. I'm calling it the story of the year. And I do, I hope you actually choose a different story for our listeners. Um, but, but that's where I'm landing. It seems, it feels late in the game, but there is one thing that I was thinking about putting on the list that has been represented otherwise. And it, this is the way that I encapsulate this year. And that is, collectively speaking, dramatic change. Yes, but that's that's a that's an, a meta narrative. That's not a specific narrative. <laughs> well, and I know, and that's the thing is. So, what is the thing that I'm responding to here? Is it the London Mulligan? No, it, it's the it really isn't. It is it. I I think the thing that I'm responding to is actually the shift in the some kind of shift in approach that has happened in R and D. And it's what led to Modern Horizons being so overpowered. You know, Modern Horizons got, um, it got Hogak banned in Modern. It got, what did it get? It got Arkham's Astrolabe banned. That's a silly pushed card, right? It got, um, and now it's got Urza dominating Modern again, which effectively got Opal banned, right? And, well, there's one other thing I'm forgetting for Modern Horizons, which well, we get the anyway. point though. We get we get the, the point, point is is that Modern yeah. Horizons is an incredibly pushed yes. set. Yes, and then following that, uh, sorry, right before that, we got War of the Spark, which obviously has design implications with these uh, static abilities on walkers that we um, that we already addressed and we reviewed very carefully, and ultimately we were proven right because we got two restricted walkers from that set now. And then, on top of that, we end up with Throne of Eldraine, which has, maybe not in the vintage context, but one of the biggest mistakes of yeah. design Oko's in modern history in Oko. Oko's already been in three Oko. formats. Three constructed yeah. formats. It's insane. And so, I'm not, I'm not sure what how, if you so, feel that it is a meta-narrative, but I think the, the thing that I'm observing from this whole year, the thing that is causing the most uh, dynamicism is is the the shift that we can't really name exactly but the shift in R&D's design philosophy to push powerful cards on us. No, I think what you just said that based upon if I were just to replay exactly what you just said, the narrative that you just articulated, the specific narrative you just articulated, Kevin, is aggressive design of planeswalkers. Planeswalkers are a big part of it. Yes, I mean that that's undoubtable. But Modern Horizons is filled with pushed cards, right? It just so happens that Force of Vigor is pushed in a different way. Kevin, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this question. If there were no... And think about this for a second. If there were no sets printed this year, no new sets, but Mm -hmm. they just implemented the London Mulligan, what would the metagame look like? Mm. 
Well, it seems pretty clear that the method for answering that question would be to look back at the metagame post champs from 2018. And that was, and then to extrapolate forward what the London Mulligan does to that, that for, for refresher, that metagame, you know, that event was run by one by Brian Koval on, on PO. There was another PO in that top eight. There was, there was a fair bit of shops in that top eight, uh, Rich Shea, Namtran. So. I would argue that the the London Mulligan, as we've observed it, uh, hard, uh, heavily rewards PO. It rewards Dredge, and so, but without new printings like Force of Negation and Force of Vigor, Dredge there's a ceiling on how well Dredge could be doing in in that environment. So I would say we'd probably be featuring a pretty strongly PO dominated metagame with the the draw seven style of PO that came about right after the uh, the London Mulligan was announced in 2019. I think that's you've got it. Look, here's what I, here's a controversial version of this. I think that if no new sets have been printed this year, the metagame would look substantially similar to what it does in December, to what it is okay. right now. Let me give you. Let me. So first of all, the, I think an even better place to look is in April when they actually rolled out the three weeks with with the London Mulligan, but no mm-hmm. War of the Spark and no Modern Horizons. Mm-hmm. Again, that metagame was 38% PO. That would not have lasted. What would have happened, in my opinion, is the bug would have emerged. Now, it wouldn't have Force of Vigor, it wouldn't have Collector's Oof, but it would still have Null Rod and all that stuff that it uses, you know, Mm -hmm. as an anti... I mean, bug has always been the Null Rod, one of the main Null Rod decks in the format. I think it would have been the answer to PO. It would eventually have emerged as the answer. And yes, Dredge would have got a big boost, so bug would have been emerged as the answer to that as well. I mean, and also, by bug having Tabernacle, it's just good against the shop deck, it's good against Dredge. I think bug. I think we would be looking at a bug, po dredge metagame, uh, just like we are now. But I think the difference is there's a good chance po would have gotten restricted. So instead <laughs> of Narset and Karn, I think there's a really good chance po would have been restricted, and I think Misstep yeah. would have probably also been restricted. And then here's the thing: the London Mulligan boost bug relative to Jeskai, so I think Jeskai, the Xerox decks, would have ebbed it to the place they are now. Not Maybe not quite as low, but I think it would be around there. So I actually think you can take out all the printings and all the restrictions. I think we would have landed somewhere quite similar. That's my theory. Interesting. Which means at the that, end of the day... What does that tell you? <laughs> it tells me that my, that my theory is... Mon- now, if I'm right, and those are all pretty wild conjectures, but if I'm right that Dredge gets a boost from from London Mulligan, just guy, the Xerox takes it a little bit of, 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 uh, get pushed down a bit. Their advantage dim- diminishes and PO gets a huge boost. And then bug is the answer to PO and dredge. What that tell, and also shops, what that tells me is the driving force, the invisible driving force throughout the year is the London Mulligan. Interesting theory. I, I feel like the restrictions of, well, the restrictions of Karn and Mystic Forge, obviously, um, they obviously, undermine that hypothetical a fair bit in the sense that like what am i trying to say here they they reinforce your conclusion but the path to it is dramatically different right yes. so it, it's it's pretty hard to tease that out remember that before modern horizons dredge always had about six or seven lands you know in addition to bizarre so it wouldn't be manaless yeah it would be running you know the lands and the nature's claims and so on in the sideboard but Dredge still gets a huge boost from the London Mulligan. So, you know, yeah. it, it's possible a lot of this would have all played out similarly. And it makes sense. I mean, 26 plus 27 years of printings, it's not like the printings in one year are going to change everything. I, I think the biggest <laughs> force has been the London Mulligan, but it's just not perceptually salient. 
to analogize to the point I made earlier. Interesting. And I think the way that which we can see that is by looking outside of vintage and looking to see how analysts are reckoning with the London Mulligan and other formats. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I, I got to be honest, though. Looking outside of vintage also reinforces the point I made about R&D's design mistakes. Sure. Because sure this year is defined by... Well, that and also like cards like Once Upon a Time. I want to be careful which, in calling them mis- mistakes. I think there's been a conscious and deliberate effort to ramp up the power level of these cards. Well, know? and so I don't mistake necess- is is shorthand for a c- card that they push that then has to get banned in multiple formats. Well, like- <laughs> I don't necessarily think that's a mistake either. I mean, if if it's if, so- if something is great in one format and needs to be banned in another format, is it a mistake? If it needs uh, to be banned in two formats <laughs> and is and is just good and good in other another format, does it is it a mistake? I- you know? I would say I would say if a card like uh, Karn the Great Creator, for example, has to be restricted in vintage but is okay in standard, exactly. that's not a big mistake. Exactly. But the converse is also true. A card like Once Upon a Time and Oko that has to be banned in standard, the the, set, <laughs> the, the one environment they actually design and test for, those are mistakes. Okay. Like, there's no okay. two ways about it. <laughs> All right. Modern uh- Horizons, and also your analysis um, sidesteps Modern Horizons, which doesn't go into standard. And so, like, obviously, these Modern Horizons cards are pushed, and obviously, there's no metric for them in standard. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's that that question is diluted when you look at the the biggest set in Modern Horizons doesn't doesn't exist on that metric. Let's let's wrap this up. Kevin. Yeah, I this is this is impossible. You there, just, just no give an award. It. It's just an award. I know, but what I'm saying is is your observations are are totally spot on, and also and specifically about the subtle very difficult to observe effects of the London Mulligan. It's an invisible no subterranean that. structural yeah. force that There's shapes no everything. That. It shapes I, everything. I still think that when I look back on 2019, I might make a note that, oh yeah, we got the London Mulligan then. Wasn't that, wasn't that a piece of work? I still think I'm going to encode this year as a huge breakthrough in push to design. And it, it, planeswalkers are a big part of it. I mean, I played Rogue Walkers at Chance. There, there's a reason for that. And Renin 6 is one of my favorite cards of the year. But um, the the simple truth is that this year stands out to me as the year that, that R&D went above and beyond in terms of pushing card design. And we're all reaping the rewards and paying the price across every format, effectively. And Vintage is no exception. So There you go. So, there you, there yeah, you to have me, it. my story, yeah, my story of the year and my moxie goes to R&D's obvious uh, ramping up of pushed card power. Excellent. And then mine will go to the pervasive but often subtle influence, metagame shaping influence of the Lo- and the bizarre trial and rollout of the London Mulligan. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Steve, you were right. I mean, this story category is obviously one of the more contentious ones, but it's it's because we had so much good material to work with, both in our analysis throughout the year and also the feedback we got from our audience. So thank you to those of you who responded and gave us gave us stuff to chew on here. And it, we really don't want to diminish the noteworthiness of, of these other narratives, but uh, we you know we have our own perspectives on things. I wanted to add just one footnote observation, not on kind of on the year. One of the things that I noticed, that, and it certainly showed up in the uh, vintage championship, and I'm not going to spend time talking about my performance. I I, I I think I played the right deck and obviously won the tournament. Um, there were some things I, I ran main deck force of negations. Uh, sorry, in the sideboard, I think force of negation is right for dredge at the moment. I wish I had the main deck. But one of the things I noticed is that there's this tendency, this push and pull tendency, Kevin, 
where three color decks like Bug or Jeskai or these other decks sometimes splash four colors to a great mm-hmm. effect, but there's always a cost. And so there's always this really this tension, you know, of wanting to splash that fourth color to really get over on another archetype. Yep. yep. And I, I, that's one reason I went Wasteland was to punish that. Um, I lost one of my matches to my opponent. I completely thought I had it won. He had a main deck, Graft Digger's Cage, one of them that I lost <laughs> to. Uh, it was just, there were, it was some heartbreakers. I was uh, against my oath opponent who made top, top eight and I beat him in the, in a try, in a league the week before. He oathed and hit um, uh, Niv-Mizzet with one card in his hand that I'd already... Two cards in his hand that I'd already seen. One was a Pyroblast, because mm-hmm. I had stripped out his hand. And in his upkeep, he um, he um, played Pyroblast. He played Pyroblast, and then he flashed back Ancient. With 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 Gaia's Blessing on the stack, he, he uh, flashed back an Ancient Grudge on his own Mox... And then Pyroblasted one of his own permanents to draw two cards with Niv-Mizzet, and then drew for yeah. his draw step. And the one card that he needed to get out was Time Walk, and he uh, got it. And so he Time Walked into Gristleband. I had I had him dead on board. So I was <laughs> so frustrated by that. Anyway, interesting. You, anyway, so I, I lo- those were the, my three losses. I beat Survival twice, and I forget what the other deck I beat. But I my deck was very well positioned. I think I I could have done things a little bit better. The point I was trying to make, though, is that a lot of the decks I played were trying to go fourth colors that are normally three colors. That's a kind of push-and-pull tendency we see in Vinge, and I think that is going to be another space for growth. And we're seeing that like in the Rug Walkers deck. I've seen mm-hmm. some four-color versions of that. Really interesting as well. Yeah, agreed. I love that kind of deck. It's my it's my favorite sub-genre of Vintage. It's those, <laughs> those three-and-a-half color yes. uh, control decks. Yeah. It's really my, my jam. Well, thank you to everyone who listened to us, to all of you who listened to us this year and this episode. Um, we are going to, Kevin and I have a little treat for you if you're a Star Wars fan. We're going to do our Rise of the Skywalker review after this short break. So for those of you who want to hang out and listen to that, please do. It's very exciting. We, we, uh, we love doing these kind of Star Wars reviews. But for those of you who don't, I reiterate, Steve, your thanks of our audience for listening to us this year. Thank you for listening to episode 96 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find our yes, show. Yes, please do that. As always, <laughs> as always, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays. So Kevin, first of all, how many times have you seen this Star Wars movie in the theater? I've seen it. I've seen it four times in the theater now. <laughs> That's awesome. I've seen it twice. How many times did you see the Last Jedi when we reviewed it? I feel I, like you saw it the I same rece- number. I had seen it five times in the theater oh, when we God. reviewed Last Jedi. I, th- yeah. I think I had seen it two or three. Yeah. So we're we're in the same same range. So Kevin, why don't you begin by giving your and this spoiler alert? We're going to have some big spoilers here. Oh yeah, nothing is safe from this review right now. <laughs> so if you haven't seen the Star Wars movie and you would like to, we encourage you to. Turn off the episode right now. Um, Kevin, what are your overall general impressions? Keep it high level for the moment. (laughs)
My high level is that this film's plot is very weak and indefensible, borderline indefensible in most cases. <laughs> However, it is very emotionally rewarding. I, I find after I can look, uh, suspend disbelief and look past some of the, the plot holes, but I find that moment to moment, it's pretty rewarding. I like a lot of the characterizations. I like a lot of the high points, and I think it's it's pretty thrilling at certain points. It visually beautiful and I find myself able to enjoy the film despite the fact that my analysis is going to be is going to be pretty darn brutal throughout the rest of this discussion. And how has your repeated viewings changed or evolved that? It it's it followed a bit of a parabola, uh, an inverse parabola. That is my first viewing was very jarring. There's just so much exposition, so much to take in. It's a lot like how we felt about the last Jedi, right? There's just so much that I was a little hesitant. My second viewing was my was you were uh, very critical after yes. the first viewing very I, critical I, I, I was and my second viewing started the it was a little bit of a downward turn in in the sense that i noticed more things that i didn't like <laughs> but in my third and fourth viewings i was able to look past that a little bit more and enjoy some of the moment to moment and some of the emotional beats and so it has improved on an emotional level for me on subsequent viewings third and fourth kevin well, one more question for you and then i'll start sharing my what did what are the two or three things you like most about the film? Oh gosh, what do I like most about the film? Um, that is it's a really interesting question. I like I like some of the ways in which the film brings together the whole franchise. That is the whole main line. Well, plus some of the other uh, ancillary films, and that's one of my favorite things. I think is that you know Palpatine is a character. We've had debates, you and I, and I have with other friends about who's the main character of Star Wars. Yes, that was my. I posed that question years ago. That was my favorite yeah. question after The Force Awakens. Yeah. Who is the main character in Star Wars? <laughs> and and my assessment, given and this is this is more than just how you feel and what you see when you watch on screen, but also considering the fact in many discussions afterwards, my answer to that question is is Sheev Palpatine is the main character of Star Wars. And so from yeah. that standpoint, it is it is enjoyable that he's in this film and. It is not enjoyable how they used it, but you didn't ask me that. So, yeah, what else is my favorite? Two to three, two to yeah. three things you really loved about the film. Other things I really loved are the visuals. I mean, like it or not, I think this film is very visually stunning. I think there's so many good shots, yes. like the the so, so many of the set pieces on Exegol oh, are so incredibly incredible. dramatic. Yeah, and then there's you know the film opens with a really a really incredible visually stunning bit where the the uh, Millennium Falcon you know flies through all these different environments. Yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, it's just fantastic. There's lots of incredibly good shots and lots of satisfying, you know, uh, spaceship shots and all that jazz. And I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of what my third favorite part that's fine, is. That's fine. I think, we got a lot I think to- the, the emotions, almost some of the emotional high points are my favorite parts. So, so I'll dive in here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm conflicted about the film. Overall, I really liked it. So I'm against the critics on this. I love The Last Jedi. So I was mm-hmm. against most of the Star Wars fans, and I, I was very lukewarm on The Force Awakens, although I, I appreciated it. Um, the thing, here are the two or three things I loved the most about this film, and we'll get to the things I hated the most soon. Number one, what I loved about the film is, it's, I don't know if this, this is in no particular order, so I'm not ranking these in, in number one to, to three, but just no mm-hmm. particular order. I would say the Ray Kylo dynamic is fantastic. Like, I really felt that there was a lot of... I, rewatching The Last Jedi before seeing this and then seeing this, I really, really... I think Adam Driver, I don't know if you saw watched Marriage Story, but he was phenomenal in that. He's just such a compelling actor. He might be the most... Like, when he's on the stage, when he's on the screen, you just can't 
but you can't look away. And his <laughs> scenes in The Last Jedi where, where Snoke connects them and they're talking through, like, every scene with Rey and, and Kylo is, is, you feel it's emotionally palpable, there's a sexual undercurrent, and you, it's surprising. You don't know how it's going to play out. Every scene with them is so great that that, that core dynamic to this film is really satisfying. And I feel like the arc for Adam Driver's character is probably my favorite thing about the film. He's just so great in the film. It's just great. Number two, um, I really liked, I thought the film had a cohesive feel. Like, when you watch scene to scene, beat to beat, it's a slickly constructed film. Mm-hmm. Like, the, I mean, it's, I think it might be the most slickly constructed scene to scene. There's no scene in the film that I really wanted to fast forward by watching it the second time. It was just every scene, even like the interstitial scenes, like on the, you know, that planet, that, that planet, the, the snow planet, mm-hmm. the snowing planet where they meet, um, you know, the, the bounty, not, not the bounty, but they, where they get, uh, C3PO. Zori, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, every scene, I just really liked every scene. And then watching it the second time, it all, f- like, felt smoother. It was just such a slickly constructed film. And then the third point, I loved the visuals and the visual elements. And I love the idea that there's like this Sith temple at the edge of the galaxy somewhere, this, you know, this enormous ziggurat. And the, and the, this, when you watch it, there's like this lightning storms on Exegol. And then it looks like the, it looks like the temple is actually hovering above the ground because you can see behind the temple, between the surface of Exegol and the, in the top of the temple or the bottom of the ziggurat, you can see lightning in the background, which yeah, means this- either the temple is enormous which it is, but there's lightning behind it. So it's actually like floating on the surface of Exegol. And then there's this enormous Sith temple beneath it. I just love that concept. <laughs> and then to your point about the visuals, you, you didn't even mention it, but the, the ruins of the second Death Star was just incredible. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful set piece. I agree. It was just an incredible, uh, the visuals, the, the whole aspect of it was phenomenal. I loved, I loved the visual. I, I really feel like it was a slickly well constructed, every scene was compelling. There was no like down scene that I really wanted to, to fast forward past. I think even The Last Jedi had some of those. And this, this, I think that of all the nine Star Wars films, I think probably has the, like, there's no bad scene. I felt like it was just all good scenes. Now. Anything you want to add to anything I just said? Did anything I say trigger anything for you in terms of the, um, the positive? Staying on the positive for now. Staying on the positive, I actually enjoy Daisy Ridley's performance more than Adam Driver's because I value range, and I feel like her range is far broader than his. I well, agree me- with you that he's compelling, but he he only kind of has intense and more intense as his like expressions. <laughs> no, and I, well, and she well, has more range. Let me let me suggest something to you. Remember the moment in The Last Jedi where he's like, you know, he, he doesn't have a shirt on and there's like a kind of a famous moment. He's really yeah. actually understated in that moment. It wasn't oh, yeah. intense. I no, thought he what, w- he's, I mean, he's cut this. I, I know. I know what you mean. But it's th- there's a casual delivery of lines, but his face, his face belies the same thing in most scenes. Like, did, did you do you have you seen him in a bunch of other movies? Do you feel the same way? No, I haven't seen okay. him in anything else. He's yeah. so good. He's so good. I believe you that he's a good yeah. actor. I don't think he was called upon to have much range in this role, so I'm not yeah. blaming him entirely. Uh, for, but for example, um, you know, Daisy has to respond to 
like the supposed death of Chewie, for example. Yeah, like he's he doesn't do anything. He doesn't emote well, in any in any way yeah. like that in the film. I think I actually think I think you made. I think she's also very charismatic. Yes, like if if she wasn't charismatic, it wouldn't work. I mean, I just think he's yeah. on a different level because he's just such a phenomenal. I mean, he, I think there's a good chance if it wasn't for Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, I think he would probably win the Best Actor award for you know for Marriage Story. He's just an unbelievable actor. I think the I, that's why I said like the dyad of them the, together, you know, no pun intended, right? <laughs> but I think that they re- that dynamic is what I enjoyed most about the film by far. Is they're both so good and yeah. they're both so good together, even better together. Like their best scenes are together. But I, I think I their wanted- chemistry earns yes. a lot of yes. the the emotional weight of the film, especially in the third act. I their also chemistry, think chemistry, but their yeah, chemistry in the last the- Jedi and this movie. Oh yeah, it's, over. it spreads across all three films. Yes. Um, I can't shake the notion that you're bringing a lot of your impression of of Adam Driver from his other acting performances into this because no, I, I I don't think I appreci- he I don't think deserves the best acting role for this film. No, no, I no, no, I would never. <laughs> I, I meant that he would have won best actor for no, Marriage Story. I, I know, but, I know. But but here's the thing. I actually want to make that point more generally. I actually think that this was probably, in terms of the ensemble cast, one of the best acted performances of any Star Wars film ever. Like, yeah. I thought that, I thought that, like, the original trilogy has, in Mark Hamill, I love Mark Hamill to death. I think he's, <laughs> I'm so glad he was Luke Skywalker. But he, his acting is not always up to par, in, yeah. like, in A New Hope. It's not yeah. always where it should be. And I feel like the cast in this film, now, overall, for the supporting cast and the main cast, it was probably the best acted Star Wars film of any Star Wars film ever. Because we obviously the prequels were just fundamentally flawed by Hayden Christensen and a bad script. You know there were obviously standout performances like Ian McDiarmid in the prequel and mm-hmm. and Liam Neeson in the prequel did phenomenal jobs, but there were really bad, mediocre performances. We'll put it that way. Yeah. And even the original trilogy, you know, had some you know just mediocre or average performances. Mm-hmm. I really felt like the acting the as a as an ensemble. The acting in this film was a cut above. Now, the weakness, the weak weaknesses were obviously number one, Mark Hamill. I was disappointed in his scene, and number two, your point you made to me on the phone is Carrie Fisher. I mean, was quite limited in what they could do with her. Yeah, and I think uh, if it had been up to me, I would have CG'd her. I think we did her a disservice by just trying to shoehorn things we had, uh, you know, in the can already and try to make her lines like never underestimate a droid and and be optimistic <laughs> like how in the hell did we choose those lines to fit into this film with how much this film needs to accomplish and that's that's her send-off in terms of dialogue i think it's indefensible but the but we can't blame carrie fisher for that like of course she not. was working with material that was out of context and there's just no reason to blame her um, right it's just a shame I, I think it's a disservice to her uh memory so, but I do so, agree that on the whole, this film was very well acted. Yeah, and it was also, I think part of the reason it was so emotionally satisfying is because the four performances were so good. Mm-hmm. Like, like Finn's, at the, like John Boyega, I think it was his best performance by far. In, yeah, he was given, any, he was given a lot more to work with too. I mean, he I, has the, he has the stupid Mimi, like run after Ray and shout at her thing. He, unfortunately, he kept that, but he yeah. has more to work with in other scenes. And I also think, I mean, Oscar Isaac is is actually a phenomenal actor. Naturally, I I saw him. I mean, I, I, he's great in Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. But the 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 thing that really 
cued me into how good of an actor he is is the HBO series Show Me a Hero. When I watched that, I was like, holy heck. <laughs> John, like, Oscar Isaac is a world-class performer. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I knew that I mean, going in. You know, obviously, he's, you know, great. Um, and I think I just think across the board, like, they were all great. They were all great. Now, I, you know, obviously, Empire has some phenomenal acting. You know, obviously, Harrison Ford. And there's <laughs> lots of good acting in, in the films. But I think overall, like... the. Like I don't think the critics really gave credit to how well acted this this film was. Sure. Okay, so there's a and we also I think the emotional power of the film is is played off the dynamic of Ray and Kylo, but also just the well the strong performances. Now let's turn to what we hated it. And let me go first. Because okay. there's there's the thing I hate most of all about the film, <laughs> and then there's the crime that this film commits. Okay. <laughs> so the let me start with the crime. This film was a scene of a crime. And the crime was, and this is not the thing I hate the most about it, but it's the crime. Yeah. The crime of this film is that it tragically screwed up Palpatine, yeah. which has always been, even before the prequels, my favorite character in Star Wars. He was by far my favorite character in the in the original trilogy, and you knew that because you've known that. You've known yes. me since before the, the prequels. Yeah. So uh, th- that, that was the crime, how he was handled. And the scene of the crime was two parts. Number one is even more important than the second part, is there is no great Palpatine line in this entire film. <laughs> There's never been a Star Wars film where there isn't a great line with Palpatine where he's in it. Even when they, even Empire, where he has one scene and they re-shot McDiarmid, you know, he, he's got some great lines in yeah. that. There's no quotable line. When I was in college, Kevin, and my um, computer would boot up every day on my, on my desktop in my dorm room, it would start with Palpatine's and take your father's place at my sideline. You know, that was literally what I'd listen to every day. And like, there's just nothing, there's nothing, the, cl- the best line he has in the entire film is the line that's not even mostly him. It's like, it's the one where he says, I have been every voice you have ever heard in your, inside your head. That's his best line. It, it's yeah. not even that great. It's yeah. such a tragedy that they, and there were way too many scenes where it was just like 90% of his dialogue was almost a carbon copy or a riff on something he'd said on a previous film. Down to oh, the yeah. line where he's talking to the Allegiant General, where he, he's talking about what uh, the Princess of Alderaan did, and that was l- literally a callback to where he's talking in the episode one callback where he says, she is more fo- the Queen Amidala is more foolish than I thought. Yeah. It's like, yeah. God, uh-huh. have some original lines. That's a crime. That's a crime. You cannot make a film with Palpatine and not give him some incredible lines. Yeah. That was that, that's the, horrible. Horrible. And they they even they even directly word for word lifted the line from the opera scene in 3 yes. where yes. he says the path of the dark side is is, is something unnatural. No, it, the line is uh uh some unnatural, right? Yeah. But un- yeah. yeah, something the, dar- the dark side is a path to many abilities some believe are unnatural. Some considered to be unnatural. Some considered to be yeah. unnatural, yeah. Yeah. And th- that so that was just horrible. The second part of the scene of the crime is that there's just no explanation for how he's there, how he survived. <laughs> it's not, I mean, you're, you're led to infer that he was cloned, right? And that, you know, whatever. And then he was brought back from clones, but it was just totally never explained. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and there's, and then if, since there's no explanation, well, let me come back to that. So the number one thing I hate in this film, by far, the number one thing I hate is having Ray be a Palpatine. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's not only stupid, but it's totally unnecessary to the power of the film. 
Like there's just it's it, you don't actually need that at all for the film to work. Yes. And so I think it was just number one, and it raises so many dumb questions. So like, why would Palpatine even have children? His whole plan was that he would be he would create a, a new empire with the Sith hidden at the core of it, and he would live forever. Either his protege would would become so much more Darth Vader would become so powerful that he would become the new line of Sith. Or that he would, he was obsessed with cloning and then would clone himself and, and do whatever Plagueis had discovered as to live forever. So either way, children are completely beside the point. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the, the weakest and stupidest thing in a film that had a lot of stupid things. <laughs> and and then I'll just say that the third thing, which I already said was, um, the, there's zero explanation for how he, he survived. And if we're led to assume that he survived by cloning himself, or he said he's died many times, so he survived through cloning. Then what? Then none of the third act makes sense because number one, how are we to believe that he is truly defeated at the end if he can just <laughs> clone, move into a different clone, which could be on any planet in the galaxy? Right, right. But number two, Kevin, his whole idea of sacrificing himself to move into her body. You know, so which is it? Is it he's literally sacrificing himself and dying to move into her body, or does he have a clone somewhere? So yeah. wh- which is it? It just, it, you know, the whole setup of the film is he's desiccated. I mean, I love, I love the way he looks, frankly. I think he looks terrifying. He's blind. Yeah. His fingers are off. He's held up by some mechanical arm. And then when he absorbs their power, his eyes glow yellow like they did in the Return of the Jedi again. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And he, he like, uh, but his, his lines at that scene are so bad. There's even a line, and I love Ian McDiarmid, but there's a line where he sounds like a Cockney, <laughs> like a, a like Northumbria of England. He's like, "There's, do you know which line I'm talking about?" No, I don't. It's what terrible. It? It's terrible. It's so frustrating. I wish I I haven't seen it in about a week and a half. So otherwise, I'd remember. But he's like, it's literally delivered in Cockney. Okay, like where is that? Where is that Germanic, you know, North North England, you know, like in from Return of the Jedi? So anyway, the last thing I want to say in terms of the things I hate, and then I'll let you rail against this film, because I've said the three things I hate. That you know, the plot doesn't make any sense; it's not explained. I I, I hate Ray being a Palpatine, and I and I and all those things are kind of bound together. But here's another thing I hate about the film, and it's what I've said most recently: the Sith Order was a secret order mm-hmm. in the in the original Star Wars film, meaning Episode Four. Uh, no one knows the Emperor is a Sith Lord. They do know that Darth Vader is because he's supposed to be a fearsome uh, enforcer. Mm-hmm. And so the the leadership of the Empire, when they're on the Death Star, and they have that conversation about how he's a soothsayer or conjurer, or, you know, hasn't conjured up the location of the plans, blah, blah, blah. None of those people know that the Emperor is a Sith Lord. Mm-hmm. So it's a secret. And the whole point is that it's a secret because they want... They want the whole idea is the emperor has a secret order that he'll overflow the overflow the jet overthrow destroy the Jedi and and become a, a new empire. But in this film, there's a stupid scene where it's a callback to that to the episode four scene where one of the generals or admirals or whomever or you know one of the let's call senior military leadership yep. of the first order is complaining about them making an alliance with Palpatine, and he says, "Why would we?" Why would we get involved with this soothsayer and conjurer, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. It makes no sense in that context for three reasons. Number one, the, the, um, uh, supreme leader of your organization is one of them. He's a, he's a, he's a force user, and you know yep. that he's a force user. Number two, 
By this point, everyone knows Palpatine is a Force user because everyone knows the story of Darth Sidious, apparently. <laughs> and number three, everyone in the universe seems to know everything about the Sith, who was a, for thousands of years a secret order, at least a thousand years. At one point, C-3PO says everyone knows that's a, that's a Sith hex symbol. Yeah. And then, and then he's not allowed to read Sith as if it's like a commonly known language instead of a secret language. Even the New Republic went so far as to ban its, you know, what banning free speech around it. And then there's a point in, in the conversation early in the film when they discover Palpatine's alive and, and Leia says something like, he's behind, been behind it from the beginning. Some random for, uh, rebellion or whatever you want to call it. What is, what is yeah. the resistance guy says, yes, it must be dark. You know, obviously the Sith had this dark magic. It's like, how does everyone know everything about the Sith now? And, and just my final point, the beginning of the film is so infuriating on this point. <laughs> like the beginning of the film opens with this, the first, the dead speak, Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine, mysterious voice broadcast to the unit, to the galaxy about his revenge. That is so the antithesis of what Palpatine did. Palpatine, why would Palpatine, who has quietly built power from the shadows and is the master strategic manipulator doing this? Now, maybe your argument is he wants to instill fear that he's returned. He's going to launch his fleet. But there are other ways to do that without like (laughs) some, like, you know, Rooseveltian news, you know, like an FDR, you know, broadcast over the radio. It's ridiculous, beyond ridiculous. So I'm done. I hated everything about Palpatine in this film, except I really did. I loved his visuals. I loved, I, I thought he looked so cool at almost every part. I loved the Sith visuals, but I was sorely disappointed by everything else. Yeah. Well... So what did you hate about the film, Kevin? <laughs> I, I I could list many many things. I will go for your yeah, top two or I, three. Um, I have imbibed a fair bit of reviews of this film since having seen it the first couple of times. And one of my favorite quips and, and and summations is from Jenny Nicholson on YouTube when she described the film as, and I'm I'm paraphrasing a tiny bit, but she said it can't survive a single why. Meaning there is yeah. no point in this film where you can say, wait, why are they doing this? And, and it holds up like almost every MacGuffin, every scene, most of the characters motivations, even as you allude, as you deserved yes. in Palpatine, they, they just they just don't stand up to this, this tiniest bit of, of critical thought like right. the, the, which which why when you originally I think you made a mistake in your first <laughs> viewing. You went in with a critical lens instead of just letting it wash well, over. Well, yeah, which not, is why I had a better emotional yeah. reaction than you and you've subsequently enjoyed you're, it more. I think you're right in the end. Uh, my reaction, for example, to the opening crawl was the same as yours. Like, oh, hey, Palpatine's in this movie. That doesn't make any sense. Like, wh- wh- <laughs> you know, in, in many, many, many ways, one of them is why are you skipping the good movie where we didn't know Palpatine was in it? Like, <laughs> the better yes, Star Wars film be is the reveal. one that exists between eight and nine where there's this menacing message and we don't know who it is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It could be a big reveal instead of putting it yes, in the scroll. Yes. I mean, I mean, granted, you are unusual because you went out of your way to avoid watching That's trailers. Right. So I didn't know that you, Palpatine you've somehow was. Avoided the, yeah, I did not know that Palpatine was the big bad in this film going in. It, and the problem is that it's not that there aren't answers to these yeah. questions. They could have, you know, they could have easily included them, but they they made a decision not to. Yeah. That's what's ridiculous <laughs> about it. Well, I just. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a phrase that I borrow from other genre, uh, other genres of criticism, like sports, for example, that I use to apply to movies all the time, and it's unforced errors. The 
to me, there are so many aspects of this movie that are just unforced errors. Like they went out of their way to make a certain scene or a certain dialogue or a certain action sequence just so it would be in the film when it was not necessary and doesn't actually serve any purpose. For example, what's the like the second conversation that you see on screen in this film is when Finn and Poe return to the rebel base. And how does that scene play out, right? They 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 stumble out of the Falcon and the thing's on fire and they have this huge argument with Ray, right? Well, what's the purpose of that argument in your mind? This is the whole purpose of that scene. What is it what's it trying to do? The, the the point of that argument is that she's not in this alone. That she can't do everything by herself. That they they need her and she needs Interesting. them. Interesting. So why didn't they just express that rather than Poe's whole message being, "What are you doing here at the base?" <laughs> and well, they were trying to make the point that that like th- what they were tr- what I'll tell you what they were trying to do. The same reason that that scene that I said it was a callback to Episode Four makes no sense because it because the point of the scene is not that it makes sense. The point is that it's a callback to a previous film. Well. And what they were trying to do there, I think was make the point that when Luke left to do his Jedi training, he abandoned his friends. And that was the tension, mm. right? That he didn't complete his training, and he almost screwed up everything. And so they were trying to enforce that point, right? That she still had to complete her training. She was not a yep. Jedi at, the, at that point. She's not a Jedi till the end yep. of the film, is the important point, right? I mean, like, I love, by the way, I just want to say this, I don't want to derail your point, but I love the fact that they showed that that, that Leia was her master. Oh, yeah. That was go, nice. Keep going. That was nice. Keep going. Uh, here's the problem with that. She's training right basically in the middle of the rebel base. Like she's standing in yes. the midst of the rebel base with people milling all around her, talking to her master Leia about, ah, I, I didn't do the course right today. There should be no mystery about what it, what it is that's going on there. How is it that Poe, well, how is it that underst- Poe ends that argument by saying, what are you doing here? What, what what's even, why are you even well, still here? Like we're meant to believe <laughs> that he doesn't lead legitimately doesn't understand why she's there and didn't go with them. When the whole the whole leader of I their think, organization is a Jedi Master General Leia and is training yeah, her protege and pose like what are you what are you two doing here dicking around? <laughs> I think that's the parallel to the point I just made. Right? It's like why is the why is a senior military leader making fun of conjurers and soothsayers that is Force <laughs> users when literally the leader of your organization is? That? I know exactly. Like, it's the stupidest exactly. thing. Like this foolish soothsayer and conjurer. So, Everyone knows Kylo Ren is a force that's, user. That's an so example. It's that's like, it's emblematic of what of what I and you are talking about, and that is it's an unforced yes. error. You have come up with the wrong dialogue, to, uh, you know, the wrong character For motivation this, to convey yeah. the thing you were actually trying to convey, and the wrong it, yeah, dialogue. Exactly, Both. exactly. And it's it's just yeah. over and over again in the film. It, that that's the thing. Um, I don't need to. I don't need to go into a whole bunch of different you... uh, issues. Uh, the the overarching thing. So you have a you had a point about the, what you thought was the greatest crime of the film, and I I, I completely support your point. The Palpatine's usage here was a, a travesty and a major lost opportunity, both for his character and also for dramatic rather, tension. I would rather him have never been in this film, and they someday. I, I I was hoping. I did not think that he'd be in this trilogy. Same. I was hope, but I did believe he'd be in a Star Wars film again with Ian McDiarmid. What I assumed would happen is they would make like a Rogue One type film where he gets a scene, and I wanted to see one of that. I wanted to see that scene. My fear is that now that he's in this film, it's it reduces the chances he's going to be in another film, and we get great dialogue, (laughs) which is infuriating. But I mean, because he's what, like he's like eighty years old. I mean, I suppose there could be another film with him in like ten years. But God, if I were them, I would just like. Give him some script, get it in the can, and and just put it away for like forty years from now. I, I mean, look, 
Disney bought Star Wars to make Star Wars yeah. films. And he's the he's one of the greatest characters. Have you watched The Mandalorian, oh, Kevin? Yeah. It's great. It's great. Uh but there are, you lose characters over time. Like like imagine what kind of films they could have made with Mark <laughs> Hamill as a younger Luke yeah. Skywalker. Gone. Can't do that again. Well, can't do I mean, that now. they, they, you know? they can, just like they did Solo. Cast another yeah. actor, that's yeah. all you can do, or try and do de-aging like the Irishman, but you can't really do that. I mean, the if you, have you seen no, the No, but I know the de-aging you're talking about. It's been used a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there, there's a lot of... I, I love the Irishman. I really liked it. But there's like this scene that got a lot of attention online where Robert De Niro is supposed to be in his 40s, and he goes outside and kicks this the grocer's ass because the grocer slapped okay. his daughter. And in the scene, it looks like his face is like a 45-year-old, <laughs> but his body is like a 75-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, it's very specific. Like, he's holding, like, his, his arms in a way that he's trying to maintain his yeah. balance, you know? And, and I watched one of the behind-the-scenes conversations, and they said Pacino is supposed to be his 40s, and he jumps out of a, out of a chair. And they say, you know, that you're doing great, you're doing great. Except when he jumps out of the chair, he jumps out like a 78-year-old, yeah. which he is, instead of like a 40-year-old, yeah. you know? So it's like, anyway, I'm very much looking forward to the Obi-Wan series this year because that's perfect, right? He's at the right, like, Ewan McGregor is at the right age yeah. to be between episodes three and four. Yeah. But I, I, anyway, I just, it's a, it's a well, crime. And some of the things that you're observing here uh, refer to my least favorite thing about this whole film and indeed this whole sequel trilogy and that is the lack of um a strong hand in oversight of the whole meaning you and i have talked about it in private a lot of people have observed there are a whole bunch of ways in which episode nine directly and in some cases directly to camera (laughs) contradicts episode eight yeah and i know that i know that kind of thing bothers you but i just want to say that that doesn't bother me at all at Star Wars because there's no way you can tell me that when George Lucas made episode four, he thought Darth Vader was Luke's dad and, and no. Leia was his sister. No, but that was 1976. And this is 20, okay, 19 at the time, right? We live in a different world. We live in a world that's post Lord of the Rings. We live in a world that's post Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Lord of the Rings came out is a book that's almost a century no, no. old, but it's not about the source material. It's about the fact that it is an expectation of today's Hollywood that for major franchises, you can make three films that are planned in advance. You can make three films where the second one doesn't go in a d- different direction and the third one has to backtrack. Like, and they made more than th- three Lord of the Rings films. The point is that franchise management is obviously completely lacking here. Obviously. There's no two ways about it. And even if you don't care like about the, the idiosyncrasies and the choices and the, and the retconning and stuff, I still, yeah. I, I still don't care. I want it. This is my favorite franchise in all of popular culture. I want someone, I want yeah. someone to be steering the damn yeah. ship. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. The Mandalorian has more well, continuity to, I mean, than these three films look, do. Here's what, here's what I'd say about that really just quick, quickly. Um, I actually, in film, the, the, sh- the, the main person is the director. Right. That's just, that's just, you know, in different genres. Yeah. No. In comic books, it's a scriptwriter. In novels, it's obviously the author. In, you know, in films, it's the director. It's more important than the screenwriter. It's more important than the producer. And, and I really think, I like the fact that films, I like, I love Ryan Johnson. I like the fact that I, I just think it's hard to enforce. My guess is they actually did have an outline for some of the key beats, like Ben Solo's beats. But they obviously did not settle that Palpatine would be returning. Maybe J.J. Abrams had that thought. We don't know what Kevin, uh, Colin Trevorrow had in mind 
with before they removed him. You know, we just don't know. But I actually like the fact that it's like the alien films. You, know, you get you get uh, you get James Cameron, you get David Fincher, you get you get different vi- you get Jean Pierre Jeannot, you get different visions from the director. I hear you that from a narrative perspective, you want that to be that to me that to me is not a problem in this in this trilogy. But I hear your point; it's a fair critique. I just don't happen to agree with it. Well, this is a far cry from the diversity of perspectives that we get in the Alien franchise. We are not J.J. <laughs> Abrams and Ryan Johnson did not give us the unique you know, lenses and different visual styles of of the universe that we get in the alien films. You and I have celebrated that before. You and I are famously on record that each of the four first alien films is our favorite alien film, right? There's a (laughs) reason for that. And that's because those directorial intents come through strongly. But there's no part in any of those films where they're like, oh yeah, that that thing that that character was all about in that last film, eh, they don't care about that anymore. Or no no one turns to the camera and says, I was wrong. (laughs) You know, my whole role in the prior film was wrong. Sorry, audience. Like, there's some there's some stuff going on here that is far more meta, and it borders on argument between the directors here than it does someone giving them us their personal style. There's there's no question. There's no question about that. And I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, I I agree that the threads needed to be more carefully carried through. And there was some direct opposition. I agree with that. Well, and in, you, one of your uh, c- primary critiques about Ray being a Palpatine and how unnecessary that is and how detrimental it, it actively is to the structure of this film and the, and the point of this film is, uh, is a prime example yeah. of that. Yeah, that's true. But I, what I, was, I think you're talking about two different levels. Like At one level, there's the mishandling <laughs> of, of, of Rose Tico, her right. sidelining of her. You know, or or in another in the middle level, there's the decision about how to handle Ray's yep. identity. But even higher level, there's kind of like the overarching who is the villain in this trilogy. <laughs> yes. You know, that so so I, I think that they can they screwed up the smaller stuff, the mid level stuff, but I, I have no problem with the kind of you know, changing direction or lack of structure on the over the overarching encompassing well, stuff. But this is more of a disagreement between you and I rather than between our audience. So your point is taken, and I, I, I hear where you're coming from. I just don't fully subscribe to that. Well, that I mean, that's fair. But for me, that's that's the thing that stands out the most, is there's so much of this film that is trying to backpedal from The Last Jedi, and the the directors are obviously, and then the writers are obviously um, taking it out on the audience in some cases. Luke Skywalker speaks on behalf of the director directly to the audience in episodes 8 and 9 yeah. in a way that's that's laughable. and so. That kind of thing, it, it, I guess it just affects me in, in a stronger way than it does you. In the end, I mean, I'm going to encapsulate this film as one that I enjoy to watch every once in a while, and it's really going to bother me, certain things about it, but I'm going to come back to it because there are certain moments that are worth it. Just like in The Last Jedi, the, yeah. the moment that Snoke dies and, and Rey's saber flies toward camera into her hand, like that moment is worth that scene. And and the moment, yeah. for example, where Ray passes but, Kylo Ren or now Ben Solo, where Ray passes Ben the saber through the Force at the end of this film, like I that's, love that. that this film is is worth it for that moment. <laughs> yeah, I love that exactly. And so I like so that. So let kind me of thing. let me just no. Th- there were some great moments, great moments, some disappointing moments, and some like head yeah, scratchers yeah. to say the least. Let me just try and say a couple other things that I wanted to just get out there. One other thing. So th- one question is, what's the future of Star Wars mm. after this? Uh, it's an interesting question. Another question is, you know, 
part of what makes Star Wars so powerful, I think especially the original six trilogies, original six films, the original two trilogies, is that it's a statement about why is Star Wars so compelling? It's because Star Wars is about the things that really matter in life. It's about family. It's about freedom. It's a story about it's a story about freedom and oppression, and that tyranny and oppression, and freedom and liber- liberation. And ultimately, that's what it's about. And so the 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 empire is very clearly a Nazi regime, very mm-hmm. clearly. And the whole point about the the original, what makes the original trilogy interesting, in my opinion, not sorry, the prequel trilogy orig- interesting, in my opinion, and redeem redeemable, is the the subtle political machinations. Now, not everyone, it wasn't necessarily well executed, you know, between the trade, the manipulation of the trade me- federation and the civil war, you know, and and all of that in the clone the the clone army. It wasn't always well executed, but the concept mm-hmm. was there. And what was really there was the decay, the political decay of the Republic, both through its age and its natural kind of, you know, it, the decay, the machinations of, of Palpatine and his allies. There, what what political statement is in this trilogy? That's really the problem. Like, it, I'm, it, I actually fault the original film for destroying the New Republic. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what comes of that? What what comes now? The New Republic was destroyed in one felt that you worked so hard to rebuild. You know, it's like, so what, what is the politics of this? The politics of this is really weird if you think about it. So it's, you essentially have three organizations. You have the resistance, the first order, and the final order, right? So, and then the final order and first order kind of merge, mm-hmm. right? When Palpatine takes over the first order and he wants to build a new empire, but it's not an empire based on the pre, it's like the previous empire, but it's really not. Because the previous empire was built out of the ashes of the Republic, whereas this is built as a tyrannical Sith uh, empire, right, oppression. It's really unclear. <laughs> I mean, think about this. No, I'm serious. This is a serious thing. Because if you take if you take seriously the notion of an empire, the whole point of the empire is a, is a Nazi regime. The justification for it is that there is an order there that actually builds a quote unquote, and you'll know what this quote is, a safe and secure mm-hmm. society, right? That is, that is organized by a dictator. And, and that the, the, the impetus for the empire, the impetus for the empire is that the civil war has created so much chaos in the galactic society that the sit, the empire, emperor is needed, the empire is needed to bring order and security and that it would actually, and if you watch the Mandalorian, it makes that case so well, right? When you have literally a Werner Herzog there talking about the merits of the empire and how weak the new Republic mm-hmm. is. The irony to me is that the Mandalorian does a better job of bringing in the political elements and, and, and the spirit of that than the new trilogy, which completely sidelines it. It doesn't even make sense. Like the whole purpose anyway. So. <laughs> It's like you've got these two weird organizations, the first and final order, who aren't aligned or maybe aligned and then become aligned. And it's not even clear how that happens, you know. And what's their political motivation? What are they trying to achieve? None of that is clear at all, ever. And the resistance, like what comes of the resistance, is completely unknown. Yes, we know the Jedi Order will presumably be refounded, even though the whole point of the Last Jedi is that that needed to be ended. <laughs> Don't forget, Luke you know? was wrong. So, so I, no, but Yoda said he was right. <laughs> Yoda said he was. It was Yoda who said it. I know, did, you know but Yoda anyway. is, is notably absent from Episode Nine. Yes. So anyway, I I just wanted to point that out that I think that well the politic the political elements the symbolic meaning of Star Wars was completely and utterly lost, and it became it became it resolved down to that's who are those? That's not a Navy. Those are just people, yeah. sir. 
So what is the political meaning of that? Completely unclear. Well, it's it's a very individualized definition of the, of self in our modern culture, yeah. you know, the democratization of, super of our culture. Atom, super yeah. atomized. Um, right. But, it, but whereas the whole purpose was the founding of the New Republic, right, in the original mm-hmm. trilogy, leading towards that, that's completely... It's not even clear what replaces this. You, a new you New and, Republic? You and I have talked about think? this offline a number of times. We know that in terms of... Um, political that that is to say ge- like geopolitical governmental structure the original trilogy makes some reference to certain things but is is pretty weak at explaining them right there are there's some allusion to it mm. you know this talks about the the emperor has dissolved the senate what does that mean well the local governors yeah, it's in the, the very local original- governors will keep the their, yeah, it's very yeah. clear, in I, well, my opinion. I mean, very clear is a pretty... I think you're reading a fair bit into the statement the Emperor has dissolved well, the Senate. Well, for, for a fantasy sci-fi <laughs> you know, fantasy sci- There's a film, lot that's I mean, not it's clear. not like we gave... But, we didn't get... We weren't given a diagram of no, Compnor, right? I mean, it was but like... But for all the ways in which the prequel trilogy is derided, one of the things that it does the most and best out of all the three trilogies is to explain both the governmental and the political and the social impacts of... Of the ch- of the changes that yes. are going on, and the underpinning, you know, the Phantom Menace is a is a is a yes. multi layered reference to that. Um, one of the things that you and I have talked about, after, especially after watching Episode Seven, and then after watching Episode Eight, was the exact nature of the First Order. Right, like how big of an organization is it? Uh, at the end of Episode Seven, for example, there's um, they destroy Starkiller Base, right, and. And one would assume yeah. that they destroy. It seems like a near fatal right. blow. Right, you and I, yeah. you and I both had the same assessment that that would seem like that would have removed a significant portion of the materiel of the first order because the first order is not the empire, right? It's not a galactic force. No. It's just a, a no. smaller thing. And so when Starkiller Base blows up, we think, hey, that's great. The first order's been dissolved. Well, then Episode Eight starts, and they have even more ships than before. So it begs the right. question, oh, okay, how big is the First Order? And that- I mean, the Empire being a galactic organization was, able, ha- was built on the remnants of right. the Republic. So it had the logistical ability. Remember, because they yes. built it in the Republic, because built of the, the original War, yes. yeah. ships. And yeah. so then Episode 8 kind of resolves. And now we're starting Episode 9. And you said it yourself. The, the First Order and the Final Order kind of merge. Well, did they? All I can tell you is that one ship's worth of people went to Exegol. And took command of t- of tens of hundreds of thousands of star destroyers. That one, de- you know, General Pride dies. But as far as I can tell, and the Hux dies, obviously. But as far as I can tell, none of the other material of the First Order First. is involved in the conflict on Exegol. The, it, is, it was just the final it was just order the final order out. plus Pride yeah. and Hux that got killed. No one else who makes who makes this up the First a, Order was even problem. present in the com- the climax of that film. This is a, another problem with yeah. the film. Well, we could yeah. go on and on and on. I I think I'm hopeful for the future of Star Wars content. But honestly, I would like to see Star Wars go away from big films and trilogies, yeah. unless they're set in some distant or you know, you know, some earlier period. <laughs> I I would I I would like to see I would like to see more TV shows. I think TV is the yeah. way to go. I like The Mandalorian is awesome. I'd like to see hopefully yeah, I'd like to be, see more Rogue Ones. Yeah, meet or standalone yeah. films like yeah. that. That's what I'd like to see. I would like to see standalone films set at different points and in, in interesting points in the universe. I would love to see like a film where the emperor is training Darth Vader after his injuries. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see well, something I know, like that. I know that you and I want to see some Plagueis material, right? 
Yes, we could see that too. You That'd can make eight films about Plagueis well, and Palpatine if my, you want. <laughs> honestly, my theory, my theory going into this film is that I thought Snoke was going to be revealed as Plagueis. I did too, honestly. There's two ways you yep. could have done it. Stoke was Plagueis, and that he's the big baddie, and he's kept himself alive through through clones, and he allowed himself to be killed to to, to ascend, allow Ren yeah. to yeah. It's that, or you bring back Palpatine, and you make it really clear that he has a bunch of yeah. clones that he can he, he that's what he learned from Plagueis, and then you have to deal with that head on. But they yep. didn't. Yeah. So I've got to go, Kevin. It was awesome talking <laughs> our review with you. Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Steve. Appreciate you sitting down to do this one as well. And thank you to those of you in the audience who uh, who've hung out with us for this extra content. Do us a favor and tell us what you think about the rise of Skywalker via Twitter. And since I've already given you our standard outro, I'll just say, may the force be with you. Ha, 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 ha.